Welcome to the Life in the Stocks podcast, ladies and gentlemen. My name's Matt Stocks. I'm the host, and the show features unedited, in-depth, candid conversations with a wide range of musicians, actors, comedians, and creatives. If you're not already, be sure to subscribe to Life in the Stocks on your favorite podcast platform. We're available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and indeed all major podcast platforms. Be sure to give me a follow on Facebook, Instagram, and TikTok as well, at MattStocksDJ. That way you can keep up to date with all of my live Q&A dates, my DJ performances, and of course, who's coming up on the show as well. But without further ado, let's crack on with the show, shall we? Here we go. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Seems a shame to interrupt such a beautiful song, but there's plenty more where that came from. The playlist has been handpicked by this evening's very special guest. It is his personal Sunday playlist, I am told. Uh, and he's already spoiled the moment of the big reveal because he's here. Now get back behind the curtain. Ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> he's behind you. There he is. So, I mean, obviously his name is above the door, so the, the surprise hasn't really been spoiled. Please join me in welcoming to the stage and saying a big hello to our special guest for tonight. Give it up for Jason Perry, everybody. Woo, 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 woo. Cheers, Jason. Hello. I'm on the whiskey because I've got a, Cheers, a terrible cold, and that is, is soothing and helping. And uh, Jason is on the Peroni, I'm told. Hello. To cut him off after three. Um, he's halfway there. So, uh, yeah, here we are. Nice full room, right? It looks good. Packed. Packed out. Can't <laughs> believe how many thousands of people came here. <laughs> We're here. Thanks for coming. It's going to be one hell of a night. One person I notice is not here, though, and I'm devastated about this, is uh, our oh, mutual man. friend, Stephen Battelle. Oh, he's not here. Now, no, Stephen, Stephen is somebody I've known for 10 years or more. And weirdly enough, today... Um, Facebook memories can either be the best or the worst things, right? They can either take you back to a time and place 
where you are in a state of bliss and absolute gratitude for where you are in life. Sometimes they can take you back to somewhere you'd rather not remember. But I think it's good to know what we've been through and enjoyed and, and, and recognize where we are now. So on this exact day, 10 years ago, I got the news that Kerrang Radio, where I used to work in Birmingham, was closing its stations. I was losing my job. Uh, loads of my friends were losing their jobs. And it was like probably the worst day still to this day of my life. And, um, and around that time, Stephen and his band Lost Alone broke up. And, and we'd gone from touring together. I was making a documentary about his band. We were going to like arena shows where they were supporting Evanescence. And we were riding this wave. And then all of a sudden, both of us kind of came crashing down. And it got me thinking about the last 10 years, what I've been through, what Stephen's been through. Um, and it's so amazing for me now to have just seen the, the tour announcement with McFly and Lost Alone as support act to all those shows. And also, I know you've been working with Stephen on the new McFly record. So tell me a little bit about how you two got connected, because he's such a dear friend of mine, such a special talent as well. And it's so nice to see him, you know, back where he belongs, playing in front of big crowds and writing huge pop records once again. Yeah, he's amazing. Um, I first met him, well, um, a friend of mine, Adam, who was mixing, not, not my brother. <laughs> <laughs> I know him, I know him. <laughs> Adam, my brother. Adam uh, Perry's here, yeah. ladies and gentlemen. And you see someone who looks like Jason. Yeah, my other brother, so. <laughs> We're not very, um, what's the word, competitive in our family, but Adam, <laughs> Adam was talking to me about five minutes before Giles turned up and said, is Giles coming tonight? I said, yeah. He said, right, well, make sure I come up and speak before Giles does. <laughs> I said, what are you going to speak about? No one cares about you. You're just a drummer. <laughs> and he said, no, I've got loads of stories. My stories are better than yours in the Blood Hound Gang. <laughs> What's that? <laughs> All right. So Adam wants to come up and talk. <laughs> Both brothers are coming up at some yeah, point Yeah, Giles tonight. will come up as no well. No doubt. You you are invited, Adam. Anyway, so um, another Adam. He, uh, yeah, Adam. Right. So my friend Adam Noble, who's a really good engineer and mixer, he was mixing a record for us, and um, I was going down to help out, <laughs> um, which I don't think I'm very helpful. I just sit there and eat stuff and go, "That sounds this." Um, and then he said um, he's working with his band called Lost Alone, and he played me this Lost Alone record, and it kind of blew me away a little bit. And, um, which which album was that one? You remember? I don't know. No. Um, Doesn't matter. They're all great. Yeah, and then um, and then through my friend Johnny, who manages Stephen, he just said, "Do you want to come and do some songwriting with Stephen?" So I went down and did some songwriting with him um, in the house in Notting Hill. That's the house in Notting Hill, the movie, which is quite cool. And then um, and we got friendly through that. And then every time I do a record, if I've worked with a band more than once. I always try and bring somebody new into the session. And is there, I mean, so, I'm sure there is, but what is your reason for that? Because I'm quite boring. <laughs> and um, I just I just think bands are good when you, when you can mix it up a little bit and bring some energy in. And there's a, I don't really have, well, if I'm a producer in a band, I try not to have much, Adam and Giles may disagree, much ego involved. Apart, <laughs> apart from Nito, well. you got a cold too. <laughs> apart from, I want the record to be good, so I know what I'm not very good at, which is most things. 
But what I am good at is having friends that I can bring down and say, do you want to come down and hang out for a day? And uh, so on the previous McFly record, I brought Rat Boy down, Jordan, um, who's probably one of the most talented people I've ever met in my life. Well, I could be the best musician I've ever ever met in the whole world. And um, That's a big claim. Yeah, and he probably is. And he's, a, he's amazing. So I brought him down and said, you've got to come down and hang out in the studio for a few days and just talk about music and play the boys some music and stuff. And then before you know it, he's on every single song and doing loads of stuff. And they're all right with that. They love yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. yeah, bands, the bigger the band, the less they're bothered about stuff. They just want an album to be amazing. That's it. And um, so the bigger the band, the e- easier that is. The le- I mean, they're concerned about everything, but they're just trying to make a great record. So it's kind of whatever it takes, really. So on this new Fly album we just made, I spent, I don't know if Dougie was meant to come tonight, but I don't think he's here because he'd be laughing. I can't see him. But um, he um, he was on the list. He yeah, may still show. He hasn't come. So um, he was, I spent two weeks with them trying to convince them to make a Rush record. And um, <laughs> I actually did. And um, and I'd started subtly not mentioning Rush. I mentioned Boston and I mentioned Aerosmith and I mentioned um, Aria Speedwagon and just said, let's make a really non-ironic, proud to be pop, dad rock record. Like classic 80s AOR. Yeah. Let's celebrate. Stadium what, rock. Right. Fly are an amazing live band and they love playing live. And... Um, so we kind of got this big whiteboard out and wrote about all the things that they love about being in a band. Because it's really hard when you're making in your eighth record, it's really hard to know what you're going to make. It's easy when you're 15 and you're like, Grundo. Do you know what I mean? Like one band when you're 15 or two, if you're from Suffolk, you're like Van Halen and I made an, another band. And um, But when you're older, you like everything and you appreciate everything and you can play everything and everybody's into loads of different music. So you spend the first two weeks of making an album going, what are we? we?" And normally that's a reaction to the last album, which is what this new one was. There was no guitars on the last album, so let's put loads of guitars on this. And then there was one day and we were just talking about Queen and riffs and stuff. I said, oh, no, great guy to bring down. And then I invited Steve down and within within an hour we'd written a song. I can hear, I'm not sure if he's even involved in the song that has already been released as a single, but I can hear his guitar tone and, and personality and I can hear a bit of that Patel flavour yeah. in the mix. It's something about God. God it's not God gave rock and roll to you, that's Kiss, but what? Oh yeah, that one, yeah. 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 yeah that's definitely he's all over that. Pure yeah. Patel. Yeah. <laughs> and I was listening to the Don Broco record, the last one you just did on the way down here today as well. And um it seems like, correct me if I'm wrong, if there was a Jason Perry sound or niche, as the Americans like to say, would it be big anthemic kind of upbeat party arena rock that seems to be what you do better than most at this stage yeah. in your career big with, pop yeah big pop with guitars that's what i love is that your favorite area in which to work or is it just kind of worked out by accident that that's where you landed i, know, I love loads of music the only music i don't like is kind of r&b kind of in the club i've got a nice car <laughs> music so 50 cent yeah, but my kids love 50 Cent, and I don't, but that's the only kind of music I don't like, and I get it. I just not my cup of tea. So I just, and I love melodies, and, uh, you know, I love the Beach Boys and the Beatles and brought up on melody. So I love pop music, good pop music. 
and they always say it's the bands there's good pop music and there's good rock music and there's bad rock music and bad pop music and who cares um so yeah i think yeah broker are a really good example because my job in don broker is to be like a bit of a caveman in the room which uh, i'm have quite, to elaborate on that i'm quite good at well because they're really good musicians and they're really technical so when i first met them the, the, again, they can play anything. They're really technical. And I don't really want to hear any effort on a record. I don't really think that's cool. Uh, kind of. So my job is to kind of get some humanity out of them and kind of be a bit of a Luddite, really, and be the fall guy and have a 200 bad ideas every day, maybe 300 on a good day. <laughs> so what, <laughs> is he trying to say that he's not musical, boys? Is this I'm not very he's... musical. I don't really know much... I can't play an instrument. You can't? No. Wow. And I can't sing very well. And I don't know much about music apart from I like it. And that's it. And um, I used to be in a band and I kind of know what makes bands tick. And I kind of make bands comfortable when I'm with them and I help them make a better record. And some days it's not even to do with music. Some days it's just making the dinner. Well, that right there is kind of what you touched on. I'd love to explore that idea further is what the actual role of a producer in your eyes and mind is. Uh, and outside of the capturing of sound, mm. what, what you're there to do is that, you know, external yeah. member of the band for that period in time to get what they're there to get done, done. That's it. Yeah. The, I mean, all bands need a producer. And I think, well... Obviously, there's exceptions, but I, I think most bands who don't think they need a producer are probably the ones who do. And I think the old-fashioned production was old-fashioned day in our men in the 50s and 60s where they were in-house producers making records. So they'd, they'd, they'd A&R it. They'd be artists in the repertoire. They'd put the songs of the artist. And back in those days, people would cover the same song within a year. Three... You know, three bands are part of the same song or whatever, or three artists. So, and then it, then it, then producers became um, less connected with labels, and there were producers for hire. And obviously, there was famous ones back in the day. Some, you know, um, like Phil Spector, maybe is a good example, who who got known for a sound, for a certain sound, um, and a few other things. Yeah, that. <laughs> Murdering and stuff. <laughs> what a legacy! <laughs> yeah, but a great sound engineer. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm, I need to murder someone. <laughs> but um, so, do you remember when you were first aware of? Because I know when you're younger and and you actually used to buy albums, you'd read, you yeah, know, the, the credits. Um, yeah. Do you remember when you first picked up a record and was like, oh, I wonder who outside of the band made this? Like, when did you first become yeah, I was aware obsessed with that. of what a producer is? what they do and, and yeah. who was the first one that made you go I want to do what that person I never knew um, that would have been um, uh, let's see, Trevor Horn probably so and my mate Dave who's here today got us into that I thought I was kind of into those Yes albums that Trevor Horn made on of a Lonely Heart and stuff and then Dave introduced me to like all those NTT artists and Art of Noise and Frankie Goes to Hollywood and all those amazing records. And you realize that there's a team behind that and there's a studio, there's Psalm and everything. And then 
this Pete Collins who went on to work with Rush and then his Anne Dudley from Out of Noise who did all the strings and then Andy Richards who did all the keyboard programming and you're like, oh, wait a minute, Trevor Horn's job is to bring all these people together and get all the best people to work on this album and help, you know, that sound. And it's like, that's really cool. It's not just a guy who sits behind a mixing desk all day pushing faders, which I used to like to do and still do every now and again. But I think my role now, I'd love to just never touch any equipment, really. And I had a studio and I love... Well, I had a studio and then I got rid of my studio because I started getting too obsessed with equipment and um, and and buying gear and stuff. And I know loads of producers who love that. And I loved it for a while. And then it was like, this has got nothing to do with music, really. All, all, all that's important without being egotistical, so I'm going to be egotistical, is my heart. That's it. That's what people are paying for. Not my compressor. I can just hire that in. So I'll slowly got rid of my studio and got rid of all my gear. And to me, music is just, I hear it through my ears and it goes to my heart and that's it. And if it moves me in a way, then I think it's, it's, it's valuable. And it really doesn't matter about the chorus or the structure or anything like that. It's just whether at the end of that song, it made you feel something. So that's really important with like Don Broco. That's what I try to get from them. And, th and they've been brilliant reacting to that, really good. And Bobby's lyrics are just unbelievable. So good. And they've always got loads of heart and loads of meaning behind them. Um, but he's really good at dressing that up in this kind of uh, Bobby from Broco way, which is kind of in a almost Brit-poppy kind of way of um, doing rock lyrics. And I've always loved rock bands who are not really rock bands because that's what A were. Yeah, and we Bro Broco have always been that. And, yeah. and they're another band who, there was a time when it was only me and Alex Baker were the only two people in the country who would play them on the radio. For years, Radio they 1... probably still are. You, radio no 1 play. would never touch them. And yeah. I remember talking to their managers and they were like, we just can't get radio play from anywhere other than Kerrang for these guys. because the production was so bad. <laughs> well, and, it's, and But just because, though, they were kind of fun, right? They, they've always been fun, tongue-in-cheek, kind of cheeky... Yeah. And that sometimes doesn't go over. I think we've changed a bit culturally now, but 10 years ago, it was like if you were a rock band, you were meant to be serious and don't have fun with it and don't be self-deprecating. And so they didn't quite fit in anywhere then. But I guess what they've done is just spend 10 years playing live and amassing a fan base, perhaps the old-fashioned way, whilst progressing as songwriters and, and recording artists. And now they're like an arena band and they're amazing. Yeah, first time I worked with them through the done Coco, which is what, 1,200, maybe more. It's about half the size of this place, I think. Yeah. <laughs> so they've gone, from that, they've gone from that to Wembley with no radio play and hardly any press uh, to that, at that point. And they were like the black sheep of the rock community. But I love that about them. I love bands who polarise people. I love Bobby's voice that you either love it or hate it. That's why I love Rush and bands like that in the first place. Mentioned Rush again. Someone's on the Rush... <laughs> I'm not going to buy you any drink. So there's no. some form of challenge that was let down that Lewis every time you mention them, yeah. I'll buy you a drink. So I think that's 10 I owe. <laughs> um, did you yeah. feel like A were always that then? Did you feel like well, A? My voice. Well, Adam once said the reason we're not successful is my voice. <laughs> and, he, and he used to... Because um, <laughs> I threw you in a fountain. What, my stag night? We had a fight in Caesar's Palace on my stag night <laughs> in Vegas. 
and we ended up on the floor <laughs> pulling each other's hair. <laughs> um, that was a terrible night, wasn't it? No one bought me a beer. We've been on tour for so long, and now it's like, okay, guys, here's a good idea. We've been on tour in America for two months. We've been in Vegas for too long. Everyone's sick of the place. You all just want to go home. Let's have one more night out. But tonight, you have to buy your own drinks. And everyone's like, I'm staying in. <laughs> because like, you don't buy drinks on tour. So we went out on this stag night, and Dan went off somewhere. Adam and Giles had an argument with me. It was rubbish. Then what Adam got chased down. Vegas, <laughs> eh? Adam got chased down the sunset, down the strip, Vegas strip, by a guy with a knife. But he put Giles. Do you reckon he had a knife on? Is that Adam Tax? What? A big dude. All right. Anyway, so um, what were we saying? What were we talking about? What was the question? Were A always yeah. in your mind the black sheep of the? Yes. Music. Community. So in England, people would say, oh, you're, you sound American. And then we go to American, people would say, you, you sound like the jam or the police or something. And we were like, yes, you get it. But in, in the UK, they're just like, you're a pop punk band. And um, so, yeah, Do it took us years fair? to get on the radio. Do you feel that was accurate or fair? Uh, no, but it's business, isn't it? It doesn't matter. So everything's just an easy label. I don't know. I do find with music, people take, and I get it because I was in a band, still am. You take your art and your craft really seriously, and we never took ourselves seriously, but we we took what we did seriously, and I thought we were really good at it. And then we went through a spell where we weren't very good at it, and now hopefully we're going to be good at it again. And um, so you do take it really seriously, but we never took ourselves seriously as um, as people. And um, I think that's actually, in the short term, that didn't help. Um, especially in the rock world where you need to come in and be all big and hard and rock. We're just like, hello. <laughs> um, well, there's a band that you guys grew up with, um, which I think more so than any other band in recent memory. Rush. Uh, <laughs> the Darkness. Oh, The Darkness, yeah. Um, you Again, know, Rush. They are so comedic and silly but they're such brilliant, serious musicians. Well, we literally grew with them. Like yeah. We shared a house with them when we moved to London. Well, with, with um, not Justin, but with Dan. Indy Dan, we used to call him, because he hated rock music. And then one day he turned up with a Thin Lizzy t-shirt on. And, and then like, that's it. Forever. <laughs> like, do you like Thin Lizzy now, Dan? He's like, yeah, Justin's got me into them. And, um, and then Adam phoned me one day and said, mate, you've got to hear Justin's demos, or Dan's new demos. Sounds like Queen meets Rush. So then they played them to me, and yeah, it was incredible. And then our band was kind of trickling along, and they just went, and got huge. I think they yeah. were the last band to do that, right? Because they were everything from Kerrang Award winners to Britpop winners. They were in every magazine, like Metal Hammer to Enemy, to just being a pop band. Yeah. And then overnight, it was like, oh, they're old news. And then, for whatever reason, I mean, when you guys breaking up are you aware that there's larger cultural changes going on beyond just the disintegration of a because it seemed like the end of that band's first tenure coincided with decline of physical sales rise of streaming but then also a massive musical shift to like i mean what's now referred to as perhaps unfairly indie landfill but it was all like overnight it became indie bands yeah 
Um, and we then like that we... weird new rave scene of like yeah. the klaxons and, the klaxons, and yeah. gossip and stuff. And it was like, see you later, anything that's vaguely hard rock. Well, so what happens is that word zeitgeist, which gets used a lot. And we'd, we'd been in a band for maybe six, seven years, slowly tricking along in our own lane. And um, we got to, I don't know, what a size venue. Not big. Electric ballroom size venues. Coco size. LA2 size venues. But we had a loyal fan base and we did what we did and we did 260 shows a year and we worked hard for it and we had no radio play, very little magazine coverage, enemy hated us, chips on our shoulders, the whole thing. And then suddenly you see this kind of zeitgeist coming over the hill and you can see rock music getting big again. And we went and made Hi-Fi Serious, our third album, and the timing was perfect. So we came back from recording. What year did that come out? Right. I think Newton knows more than you. <laughs> yeah, but that was right in the middle of yeah, like Limp Biscuit and Blink One Eighty Two, and yeah, and we ended up being the biggest played song on Radio One with nothing, which is nuts. But then, so we're on a major record label, and, and Warner's had taken over our label at that time and spent a lot of money on videos and stuff, and we're the biggest played song on Radio One, and we got made what's called international priority, which mean us and Cher, and Madonna, and the streets. get We were priority that year internationally. Do you get to go for a little sit-down with all other priority acts? No, but you get to fly... Break in, bread with Madonna? You get to fly in posh planes and spend two weeks in Sweden just talking like this to MTV and stuff, and people moan about that. I loved it. I thought it was ace. And, um, and you get to feel that button's being pressed at a major record label for the first time ever. And it's all we'd ever wanted. And we were really good friends with everybody at the label. We got on really well with them from, you know, the game reception all the way up to John, the MD. And they still do. Friends for life. And they're lovely people. Really passionate about our band and, and, and music in general. So we were just happy to feel like we weren't the square pegs in a round hole for a change or the black sheep of the label. And we got made this priority band. But the flip side of that is once you've had that, the only way is down, right? The only on a major record label at that time when his radio is the only thing is we went and made our fourth album with Terry Date, who did the Deftones and Limp Biscuit and Pantera and stuff. Great guy. And we went and made that in Seattle. I think we were two months and Koran came out for a week and Enemy came out and then the record label from America came up for a week. And um and the lyric, I remember writing lyrics for it going, thinking, this is rubbish. I don't know what to sing about. And um, and really tried hard and really thought, oh, we're making a good album. And I remember flying home with the kind of unfinished songs, mixes, thinking, oh, this is something not, doesn't feel right. And then as I flew home, got home, got the enemy, and saw all these bands are literally just got massive while we were away. I was like, yeah, we're screwed. And and what were those bands? Like Kaiser Chiefs and bands like that, right. who were great. And then... But like indie pop, so yeah. it's a different sound. And you're like, well, we've got to get Radio 1 now because we've had Radio 1 on the last album and we didn't get any Radio 1. So I think it was C-listed, not A-listed. And, and, and when you're on a major record label then, that's... And it was a weird time. That's when record sales started to come off a cliff and... Uh, 
you know, physical press was being taken over by digital press, starting to take that seriously. And but there was this kind of ten years where it just it was a weird time for the music industry. And and by then we're on record number four, big advances, lots of money. It sounds interesting to me that you knew already before the reviews had come out that you hadn't nailed it. Now, yeah. what was that? Do you think was that self doubt creeping in because of the pressure of the success you were having? Were you just it was inspiration dry? Like, why do you think you weren't delivering the goods? Um, I think or were you delivering the well, goods? Some it's of just fans the, like that. The album. game had changed. Love it. Mark from my band, one of his favorite records. He loves it, and I, and I'm not saying he's bad. He just lacks all that personality that we had in our previous albums. So we kind of maybe should have had a producer to get that out of us. And we were more interested in getting like the world's best bass drum and some bottom end on the bass. And no one cares. You've been listening to too much Rush, mate. Yeah, but yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but even, even you know, that's back to my point. Like every band needs a producer and you need someone to have the balls, which comes from a place of love to say that's not right. And was Terry not that guy then? He's not that no. guy and he's a great producer, but he's more of an, a lot of American producers are like that. They're more engineers. So they're about the sounds and stuff like that. So what I really needed, well, Terry told me loads of good things though. He told me about how to relax. And he, I did a lot of the vocals by myself and then you could see me getting um, worried about the record and stuff. So he, one day he picked me up and just took me out for a ride for a day. We just went driving around Seattle. And I'm like, mate, we're playing two grand studio back there. And he's like, yeah, why are you bothered about that? You're meant to be in a band. Like, you know, why are you worried about your studio? So like, yeah, you've got a point there. And he's like, you just need to relax and chill out and be more rock and roll or whatever it is. But, you know. From focus, Seattle, isn't he? Focus on the job at hand. I mean, that's... Take some heroin and grey hair. And... <laughs> <laughs> and Get a lumberjack like... <laughs> shirt on. Come on, yeah. man. Yeah, that's super interesting, though, because... And that's a good point. As you alluded to earlier, it's so much more than just getting the sound from the players. It's about psychologically making them feel comfortable and true to what they are trying to say with the art so that yeah. they're not conscious. They're just in the moment. and Especially it... now, when anybody can make a good sounding record in the bedroom. Like I think the role of a producer now is not well. I don't think it's about sounds anymore. I would, I would, I would really wouldn't want to work with a band who wanted me to make them sound good. I'd want. I'd expect that should be on the resume. If you want to sound good, <laughs> don't hire me. I but, understand uh, what you're saying. But they will sound good because because anyone can sound good. Who cares? It's like. People are not waiting for the, another great singer to come along and they're waiting for a good voice and something that they believe in and some lyrics that means. That's why hip-hop's so big. Because people learn how to tell stories and have some balls to break the rules and and say rude things or naughty things or whatever. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Naughty, naughty rude things. Those naughty rude hip-hoppers. <laughs> they, they don't care. With their, <laughs> with their money and stuff. Their but, clubs and their watches. But you know what I mean? Like, we got so conservative and rock music got so boring. And, and um, I mean, Gente, we, we grew up on Gente, the band Jesus Jones, right? That band changed my life. There's a few bands in my life that changed my life. And, and, and they did. And you know it did. Because 
they took rock music and mixed it with some... When rock music was getting boring, and I didn't realise rock music was getting boring till Dave Steer played me Liquidizer by Jesus Jones. And I was like, holy shit, this is incredible. And, and Dave's like, yeah, there's no live drums on this. Sorry, Jeff. <laughs> And I said, why? <laughs> he said, it's all right, we'll, we'll cut that bit out. We'll cut it out. <laughs> and he said, because the drummer's shit, and he can't play. <laughs> he can't play in the studio. No. <laughs> no, no, it's not true. That's not the reason. Jesus Jones are amazing live, and Jen plays drums. But, but, <laughs> but they've taken. And Set I'm, their record straight. Yeah. I'm probably getting this wrong, but they, they literally took, when sampling came out, ACDC, Public Enemy, and mix it with Beatles songwriting, you would probably say. Um, and phrasing that went ee for ages. <laughs> and extended words, which which no one had done. And add that with this kind of energy and skateboard thing. And then went to see him live at the UEA in Norwich. And I'd never seen a band with lighting like that before. So there's strobe lighting and then this kind of zigzag backdrop, which I'd never seen before, which then speaking to them later, that, that came from that rave culture at the time. So they're taking things from different cultures, putting it in rock music, and it changed my life. I went home that night and was like, we are the most boring band in the world. And, and Which then, is kind of how you want to feel when you're developing your sound, right? Is to get inspired to be better and different. Yeah, but you got to see a band and have cracked it and you're like, wow, this is... Rock music could never be the same again, and it never was. And then the Beastie Boys is another example. You go see them live, and you come home, you're like, we may as well just pack up. We're never going to be that. And um, But you get inspired by that. And so back to my point is, it's not... Well, the point was, that first Jesus Jones record, Info Freako, was a demo. 100 quid demo. So it's not about sounds although it is about the sounds it's about the heart and the attitude that went into making those sounds and the honesty right well just whatever it is yeah that was a kind of punk rock record made with samplers and then we started going to techno clubs with Nito and and then I remember thinking this is like punk rock music with keyboards it's amazing and I don't really like this kind of music but I like this it's, it's exciting so I try and bring all that into the studio. Like, what can really rev you up about your band and your music and then make playlists and just trying to get people excited every day. So when I come into a room, I want to leave that room with everybody in a better place than they were every single day. And you're talking about marginal gains. And by the end of it, you've got an album and it's 10% better than it would have been if I wasn't there, hopefully. And then that's my job. And sometimes that's, let's work on a snare sound, but not just because we want to get a fancy snare sound, just because that song needs it emotionally, and maybe the next song doesn't. And like on the last Don Broco album, there were some vocals that Matty, the singer and drummer, had done in his little Behringer mic, 18 quid Behringer mic, into his little garage band set up on his laptop. And I loved it sounded amazing and I'm all about trying to keep as much from the demos as I can now so if I start a project now I'll go through all the demos of the bands and I'll just go right I want to keep 30-40% of this and the bands are like really there's demos yeah it's amazing and um, so I sent Matt back to his room to re-record a lot of the vocals for that the second verse and where we changed lyrics 
with exactly the same equipment that he recorded the demos on at home. And that's what's on the final album. Yeah. yeah. So we're sitting in the studio with all the posh mics and Matt's back in his bedroom on his bed singing through an 18 quid Behringer mic. And that's what's made the album. Now, that's got nothing to do with sitting in front of a mixing desk trying to look cool. That's to do with making decisions saying, that vocal sounds amazing with that microphone and where you were at when you recorded it. Let's try and keep that vibe through the song. So they're emotional decisions that I'm making for the band and none of it is based around fancy microphones or big mixing desks or anything. How long does it take you to get to a point where musicians trust you in those choices? Because there must have been moments where they've looked at you and gone, what, you you want me to do it that way? And you're like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And they just must think you're mad. But to trust you is obviously why they've hired you. Is there a turning point in your evolution as a producer where you feel like you've shown up, delivered the goods, and then from then on people go, I trust this guy, he knows what he's on about because of that first thing? Yeah, that happens a lot. What happens a lot is I'll go in with a band we'll all work on something together and it'll be really good and I'll go home really happy. And then they'll send me what we've been doing and they've changed it as soon as I've gone home. And they've just gone back to, reverted to type. <laughs> it's happened this week. I'm like, but we were working enough for two days. And they're like, yeah, we kind of thought we'd go back to this. And it's like, are oh, you just not quite ready yet to, you know, emotionally take that step up? And so that takes a while then. And then it just clicks and they just get it. And, to me, simplicity is the hardest thing in life and in art and in anything, really. And it's getting a band or artist to simplify what they do is really hard because that takes a load of courage. Same with our band. So we just threw everything at the wall, see what would stick most times. And it's only when nothing came out where we really simplified it. It's like, wow, this is what it feels like to make a proper record now. We got lo- rid of loads of things and it's just kept the key things. That's why Apple are so good. So got thousands of people all around the world just trying to simplify every product. Whereas all the PC companies are putting stickers all over your laptops, telling you all these little ports and everything. And Apple just simplify everything. And there are to... other computer products available just for everybody yeah. listening. But the... Apple is the best. So Yeah. Well thank you for the free laptops. <laughs> So I really like... Was it, was it your phrase, re- reduce, not produce? Or were no, you, that's Rick Rubin. That's Rick Rubin. Who I think is the greatest record producer of all time. Have you ever met him? Have you ever I've, I've, waved, I've waved to him. <laughs> Did he wave back? <laughs> no, I was with our manager, Tanker. We were walking. We were in LA one time. And Tanker's like, Rick was walking down the street and knew Tank and waved. I was like, that's Rick Rubin. Got scared. Who's the biggest letdown you've ever met? If you can say, if you want to say. Alton Towers. Um, uh, Alton Theme Towers, parks are people. Alton they Towers count. is great. Um, Adam and Giles, who's the biggest letdown we've ever met? I can't remember. I can't think of any. That you two. Um, I don't know. Well, let's flip it then. Who's been amazing? Hero, most, hero most wise. Be, the bigger the band, the, the more amazing they are. Oh, yeah, I was in the studio with Suggs this week. Can we talk about that? The context of it, we can't, but the actual being in the studio with Suggs was pretty amazing. Okay. Yeah, that was awesome. Um, but, uh, yeah. Was was he everything you expect Suggs and to more. be? Yeah. And he invited me and, um, invited me and my girlfriend Emma to his house in, um, in Italy. So 
We might go there. No big eight. Do some no stuff. big eight. Might do some eating and that. Um, yeah, he was amazing. And then I went home and listened to, we got obsessed with, if you watch Madstock from that first one when they go into um, One Step Beyond and all the crowd are singing, then it goes straight out of that into embarrassment. It's just unbelievable. You're like, whoa, like you're dealing with one of the greats. Bed and Breakfast Man for me, I love that tune. Yeah, amazing. But they're, um, they're one of those bands, it's like, it's cabaret in a, in a credible way, if that makes sense. It's fun for all the family, like you'll have, you know, skinheads from back in the day, all the way down to like, you know, five-year-old kids now, like, and everybody is in the moment of dancing and, and celebrating music for the joy and the love of, of, you know, music. Yeah, just unbelievable. I mean, I think for me, Run DMC, when I was in Mexico doing a, a Molotov album and they said, oh, we're going to get um, Thingy Dan. What's his name? <laughs> I forgot his name. <laughs> uh, what? <laughs> um. <laughs> Daryl. Daryl. There you go. So Daryl came down and um, and again, I recorded Daryl in, in Mickey from Molotov's bedroom in Acapulco in, one of, in their villa in Acapulco. Um, and then that morning with just an SM58, this microphone, into my laptop. And it was one of those moments I'm like, wow, and he's just rapping and starts doing Walk This Way and stuff. And then we go out having a few bottles of wine and he starts telling us all these stories about the BC Boys and Mick Rubin. And he's just like us. He just talks all night and just loves it. And it's just, oh, my God, he's just amazing. Absolutely amazing. Just things like that. And, and, and then recently getting to know Robbie Williams and seeing him work and just his creativity and his genius and then standing at the side of the stage with his in-ear monitor pack, listening to his mix as he's singing. Like, yeah, he's pretty good, aren't he? Just unbelievable. Amazing. I saw a video of him earlier today. Do you know that band, uh, Lottery Winners? Yeah. He was in their uh, HMV record release party in store singing, <laughs> singing Angels with them. Really? Just rolled up. I was like, wow. He seems like he's, and he's always doing stuff with um, Jason from Sleaford Mods on Instagram. Like, yeah. He seems like he's... He's obsessed with culture, like any down. band. He's yeah, down he and he's real and he's just, you know, he's, he's self-aware enough to send himself up and have fun. And yeah, he just seems like a great dude. Me and Adam were around his house last year and I'd never been there before. And he's, he's like, oh, all this David Hockney pictures and stuff in his lounge. He's like, come downstairs, show you my BMXs. So we're downstairs looking at his BMX collection. He's like a kid. And we're talking about jawbreakers and wampas and, you know, sweets of the 80s. And he just knows them all. Then we're going for all the BMXs. And then this painting just falls on the floor. And he just picks up and goes, oh, bloody hell. One of my Liechtensteins. And puts it up. <laughs> it's just like, yeah, you live in a different, this is down in his little man cave with his BMXs. There's paintings everywhere. Yeah, he's, um. But he's obsessed with culture and youth culture. And we were talking earlier about the death of culture. And when we were young, you had, you know, well, Madness. I was talking to Suggs last week about it. it like the name dropping section. But um, Keep them coming, keep them coming. We were on about saving up. Me and Suggs were talking about saving up and how cool that was when you were a kid. And he's like, what do you remember saving up for? And I said, stay pressed trousers. That was it. I lived in Leeds and all I wanted was a pair of maroon stay pressed. Thanks to you. And then everybody got madness ties and white cardigans. And like, there is no real culture around, uh, fashion culture around music that much anymore. Um, the first time we went to LA, you go to the Rainbow and it'd be like, you know, 
80s metalheads. It's like, well, they're still there. They're definitely still there. Yeah, but it's not. There's not a new generation of it that much, and now everybody looks like they just come back from the gym. And um, so I miss that, like mods and new romantics and skinheads and metalheads and goths. We used to have all these real defined football hooligans. We, we we knew where you were when we were kids, and now everybody's just kind of homogenized, I guess. I think the 80s was the peak of it, which is obviously when you were kind of coming of age. Because yeah. you look at a show like This Is England and you see you got the new romantics, you got, you know, the kind of two-tone crew, the skinheads, punks. Just that decade had everything going and everything was so, like, brilliantly fashionable. Like, yeah. fashion in the 80s, as much as it gets a hard time, it was pretty effing It was cool. amazing, yeah. And then in the 90s, that changed a bit because bands like Jesus Jones, at the beginning of the ni- late 80s, Early 90s, I guess, like New Order, Happy Mondays, EMF, Jesus. That's one thing that gets on my nerves more than anything is they were, like Jesus Jones and EMF were number one and number two, I think, in America. And it just gets completely overlooked, like this British invasion. You know how nuts that would be now if a scene went to America and became number one and two. And it kind of gets overlooked a little bit, but to us that was a massive big deal. So they took dance music and rock music, and that was the first time I'd ever experienced a crossover. And I think, I'm not saying that was the start of it, but now everything's a crossover. So we were talking about earlier when McFly played Slam Dunk last year. They were really nervous about it, and they went out and just played All About You, and it was the song of the weekend, and everybody went crazy for it. I think there's a real openness now in music. So when I was younger, you really had your lane. I was into the jam, so I couldn't be into Iron Maiden because I wasn't I was a modern, not a metalhead. But now you can be into all that stuff. Now it doesn't really matter. And I think that's kind of cool in a way as well. I think there's positives and negatives, right? I think um, there's a certain lack of subcultural divides which creates interesting scenes, which is slightly negative, but then the positive is that everybody loves everything and we're, we're more open and accepting and, yeah, you know. Just in general, less as well. judgmental. Yeah, because I imagine apart ba- from our fourth album, we're never going to shit. Because <laughs> back in like the first few years of Slam Dunk, if a band like Busted or McFly had to play there, then it probably would have been more of like even Fifty Cent or Reading, if you remember him. Yeah. He got bottled. Like everybody yeah. talked about Daphne and Celeste. Panic at disc. We were there. But with well, the, My the Chemical boss. Romance a download yeah. as well. Like yeah. it's crazy to think that those moments took place now. Because you have all of those bands headlining those same festivals, and everybody would love it. Well, we played. Well, Did you we ever be... get bottled? Did you, ever, you guys ever get bottled anywhere? <laughs> <laughs> Did we play before them or after them? After them, yeah. You did the same year. You were there on on that stage after them. Didn't we have to clear all the bottles after stage? Amazing. And I remember Mark, Mark and Tom from Bling were like, "Holy shit!" Because <laughs> they were on after us, weren't they? Or two bands after us. And we're like, yeah, this is Reading. It's not much to look at, but it's real. <laughs> and it, yeah, it was, that was a good year for Reading, wasn't it? It was like Rage and Slipknot. And yeah. It was, it was hardcore. It was brilliant. So you had a good show that day. Yeah, we always had good festivals. I remember once walking on to 20,000 Fingers doing that once. Where was that? In Germany. I'm thinking, oh, an enemy were there to put. Enemy were there and it was going to be a front cover. And they've been with us all day. Adam had already messed up in catering because we're having this interview with this guy from NME who I knew didn't like us. And we were talking about, he tried to trip us up with this whole Starbucks thing and talk about Starbucks 
policy on... There's other coffee shops available. Yeah. Cheers. <laughs> he's talking Shout about out Costa. workers' rights and farming and stuff. Then Adam said something not very PC about... I don't know, I can't repeat it, what he said, but it was a drummer thing. And it was like, ha, 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 the drummer. And he was like, oh, he's going to catch his out on this. And then um, we walked on to 20,000 people doing that. I'm like, this is going to be the worst gig ever. And um, it wasn't, it was good. And the way to do that is to reframe it in your head that that's, that's their version of having a good time. I heard somebody saying that in an interview recently. Yeah, he was like looking down as someone's like going like this and it's like, what? What's wrong with him? Do you go, oh, actually, that's just their way. Even if yeah. it's not true, just tell yourself that's their way of that's showing what appreciation. Yeah. Like, they've paid for that. So there's, you see all those people about 800 rows back flipping us off, Jason. <laughs> that's just their way of showing all us. All right, mate. <laughs> that they're having a really nice time. So yeah. we are going to break in a bit and then we'll come back and you guys can all send forward your questions. We've got a third mic, so we'll have Terry runs the gaff, roam the room. And if you do have a question, you can put your hand up and, and fire Matt, away. can I say something about Terry? Please. So Terry, the man yeah, who probably, runs yeah, the room. Yeah, this is good, yeah. He just came to me um, the, around the curtain and he, this is his place and said, oh, I saw you at the Water Rats with a moist bush. And he was there for that. And that's the reason we got a record deal because uh, obviously there's a band called Bush, a band called Moist from Canada, and then this band called A. And we only got put on that bill because the poster would read A Moist Bush. <laughs> and they thought it would be funny. It still is. It still is. <laughs> and Jeff Meal, the agent, has still got that poster in his office. And that's the only reason we got that gig and then we got signed at that gig. So when people go, your name's shit, go, yeah, well, got us on the Amos Bush. Depends who we're playing with, <laughs> doesn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. In context, it's quite good. This is something that I noticed in the lead up to this wonderful evening tonight whilst trying to find, you know, stuff and do my research on you is I, I, I gather that back in the day you went with the name A because it would put you at the start of the, the record bin and record shops. Genius then. But now it pretty much makes you the most ungoogleable band. It's yeah. so hard trying to even trying to find your Facebook page is impossible. Well, this man <laughs> Nito here was it wasn't his job, but he he was one of our dearest friends, still is. But um, he took it upon himself to help with that transition digitally, and then ended up working at Sony doing that for a living with with um, a slightly bigger band called One Direction. Um, and I remember Nita finally met one day going, you are fucked. <laughs> <laughs> when it comes to search engine optimization, you've got to change A band. <laughs> yeah. Take your F and pick. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's pretty hard. I'm not going to lie. Yeah, it's not uh, good. What are, what are the A socials whilst we're here? Just to clear that up. Do you know them? Can you, what uh... is it, Adam? Oh, the rock band called A. Yeah. The rock band called A. Yeah. Because we're a rock band and we're called A. There we go. So that's why we came up with that. <laughs> yeah. Absolute <laughs> genius. Yeah. If, yeah. If we'd have been a goth band, <laughs> they would have said the goth band called A. Uh, you feel good? You feel like that's an opportune moment to... No, I'd like to keep talking about me. Take a break. <laughs> and about Rush. Get, get one more yeah. Rush mention in before the interval. Um, yeah. yeah, guys, go get a drink. Pay a visit. Do what you got to do. We'll see you back here in, in 10 or 15 and we'll break can the Can we have a stage wall. invasion and Adam and Giles come up? Yeah, we want to make that the first Q&A stage invasion moment. Yeah. So you've got two brothers here. Are you relying on them? Can you trust them? Um, no. But they are talented. Well, Giles is the talented one. Giles can play 
Giles can do anything. Me and Adam just talk about stuff very quickly. <laughs> well, that's, that's our job. <laughs> let's get them both up for part two yeah. for some questions and answers from the crowd and some live music as well. Um, thank you very much, ladies and gents. We'll see you in a few. Jason Perry, everybody. Yeah. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Uh, we do have a third microphone for our surprise guest. Is that hot and ready to go? Lovely stuff. Let's see if we can get the microphone to him. So if you do have a question for Mr. Jason Perry... Then, uh, tell boy, if you want to come on down. And we'll do this in a nice civilized manner. If you want to raise your hand in the air, then uh, we will approach you with the microphone. You can say hello to Jason. Let us know your name. Let us know your question. Why called I? And we will fire on all cylinders until the questions run dry. And then we'll play some live music and all go home with smiles on our faces. How you feeling, Jace? You happy? Yeah, good. I feel bad about Jen's drumming and um, <laughs> mentioning he didn't play drums in the first... But As I said, we can take that out in post. We can fix that. He's an amazing drummer. <laughs> There's nothing we can't fix. We'll add loads of sound effects so it does sound like actually 80,000 people are here and not just 30,000. Is that Ian Rendell there? It is. Hello, yeah. Ian. You, you know Ian, don't you? I know Ian very well. I've known Ian since he used to manage Sonic Boom 6 back in the early, oh. mid-2000s. Long time. Does and anybody yeah. know what Ian does with guitarist? We should mention that. With guitarists. Yeah. Very, very good, Ian. Maybe you should come up and have a little, little talk about it, Ian. <laughs> this, this show is proudly sponsored by... So, yeah, Ian makes jewellery out of used guitar strings and plectrums and things like that from all of your favorite bands, and then they donate large portions of the money made to charity. He was just telling me outside he just donated £200,000 recently. Incredible, yeah. To charity. So, yeah. yeah. Round so of go applause. on guitarist.com. 
and it's, it's great jewelry as well. It's you know, it's very high end, good stuff. Jimmy Savile's favourite. <laughs> Britain's greatest pedo. Now then, now then, now then, Jason. He is Britain's <laughs> finest pedo. I mean, nobody can take that title from him. No. Okay, so who wants to start us off? Who's got the first question of the night? A Adam Perry, come on down. Here we go. Let's get Are it. You're gonna answer your own question. <laughs> uh, what's your favorite color? Uh, the elephant in the room. What's that? Green. What's your favorite color? Green. Uh, Next. Me, me and Jason interviewed someone last week for a job. And that was our first question to her. And, uh, she was the CEO of Victoria one of the biggest City. stores in America. <laughs> yeah. And um, she wants about half a million quid a year. And, she, and we were talking about the weather. And she's like, I hate small talk. Do you want to get on with the interview? Brilliant. So, so Adam goes, well, okay, what's your favorite color? <laughs> <laughs> Let's really get so, to the meaty. <laughs> Seriously. And, and what was it? What was hers? She froze. Yeah. She couldn't answer. She, she, said, she said green, and now she's gone quiet and won't return our emails. <laughs> Brilliant. Yeah. Well, good to know you guys are making inroads. Um, okay. Anybody else? Here we go. Down the front here. What's your name? Wait, what'd you come, where'd you come from? What's your question? Uh, from Reading. Lovely stuff. Thank you for making the trip. Uh, Congratulations Jace. on your festival. <laughs> Thanks, man. You know, I work for What's best know? Reading or Leeds? Uh, I don't know. It's got to be Reading, isn't it? Mm. Apart from the, the DB limit. The annoying thing is, Reading used to be really good, and then I moved to Reading, and it's shit. No, it's rubbish. Yeah. yeah. I it's a cat it fest. Yeah, yeah, sure. <laughs> All right, a serious question. Just because you haven't booked. Uh, what, what's your process when you first start working with the band? Like, Obviously, if you're not talking about sound nowadays, you're talking about like producing as a mm -hmm. as a person, as a vibe. What what What's your first steps? What do you do? Um... So, yeah, the very first step of um, is going through all the demos. So, and I've got a, I've got a, a thing that I do which I've never changed because it seems to work. I'm not saying it's correct. But I listen to all the demos once. So I listen to a song once and then I write notes about what I thought of the song. Then I listen to the next one, write notes, and then I go through all the songs. And then I go back and listen one more time and just make sure I'm not being a dick or... I agree with myself or whatever. And that's what I do. That's it. And then I say to the band, get their trust. And we listen to a bunch of music and talk loads about music and have a day out. And then I go, I said, you want to, you know, think about what I've thought about these songs. And I'm not saying I'm right. It's just a guy with some questions. And, and then I ask a bunch of questions about the song and say, why does it do this? How come the chorus isn't as good as it should be? Maybe that would be a question. And then you tell me, because you're the band. It's not up to me. So you tell me why why that is. And sometimes it's because the verse is too good. And the chorus isn't as good as the verse. So let's make the verse not as good. Or not as chorusy, Or whatever. You just tell me why this is. And then they go for all the songs like that. And then, and then I look for the people in the room who've got sometimes the smallest voices and then see what they think about it as well. And you start to see who's kind of, there's, there's, sometimes there's a bit of a, um, uh, I don't know what the best way to describe it, but um, yeah. This They're not all on the same page to begin with, perhaps. Yeah. Some, well, there's baggage and there's history. And I worked with a band from Mexico, I mentioned earlier, called Molotov, and spent the first two days doing their album, Doing that, just going through the songs, there's 70 songs. 
And um, I didn't, I asked, yeah, and I asked them not to tell me who wrote what song. And then I picked 11 songs from 70 songs that they should go on the record and here's why. And what was interesting, four of them had come from the drummer and none of his songs had ever been accepted, really, from what I could tell. So you kind of, you're digging up a lot of old wounds and weird things, but if they want the album to be amazing, which is what they want, then the best songs have got to win. Yeah. <laughs> but the album was amazing. <laughs> Drummer shot everyone. Uh, <laughs> what, what have you noticed as some of the recurring themes as to why bands either break up or fall out or, or you know, fall apart? Is it often issues with songwriting credits and, and ego and ownership and, and stuff like that? Is, is that a recurring downfall of a lot of groups or is that not something you've really encountered? Um, yeah, I've, I've encountered it. Um, I always say... Because when you're a producer, you end up being a bit of a father figure as well. Um, I don't know why that is, because you're you're not the manager, you're not the record company, and you're not in the band. So you're in this weird world in between where you're speaking to... So I'll, I'll start my day calling the manager, telling him how he's gone, or her how he's gone. And then I'll, I'll go in with a band, and lots of bands have got loads of businessy things going on. And as in any business, nine times out of ten, it's... It's bad news, you know, most businesses are dealing with crap that's going wrong. It's not all high fives in business and the same with music. So I'm there listening to all this stuff all the time and seeing how the wheels can kind of come off because bands aren't used to being in a business sometimes and don't think in that way, although they are getting a lot smarter now because they have to do. So I always tell bands that the easiest way to fail is to split up. Like you've got to, you know, at the very least stay together. So work out why that is, you know. If there's one guy in the band earning eight million quid a year and you're earning 50 grand a year, chances are there's going to be some friction there. So, you know, try try and get that worked out, really. Because that just all boils over, you know, in the studio and then there's baggage and there's politics and all that stuff. And I've got to be the guy to help with all that. And uh, And I am a lot of the times... Because I've been in, in that position as well. And it's not easy. It's meant to be fun being in a band as well. But business isn't fun every day. And they are in the business of... But when you're in the studio, I don't really want you in that mindset. I want you in the mindset of let's create a great record. not Let's not worry about the merch order that's just gone out for Christmas. Which is what most bands are worried about now because they've got to make money somehow. And the irony is a record that you're working on is not going to make them any money. So you think you're in the studio all day, literally wasting their money. And it's horrible. Well, back in our day, you were making a record to sell records. Now you're making a record to sell tickets. So we toured on a cheap ticket with tour support from our record label to try and promote records. Now you're putting a record out to try and promote concert ticket sales. Because that's the only way to make money, which is terrible for your mental health for a band. You know, you Imagine saying to someone, the only way you're ever going to make a living for your family is to go away three quarters of the year, away from your family every year. And that's the only way you can make money now. So it's it's tricky. Unless you're a pop star and you do loads of streams, but I generally work with rock bands and rock music for some reason. Maybe Nito know, knows why. doesn't stream well. I don't know why rock music doesn't stream, but it doesn't. It doesn't stream. 
I want to come back to the mental health subject later on because I know you're working on a documentary at the moment that touches on that. And I saw an article today about Matt from Busted. He's got oh, yeah. a, a film yeah. out about his struggles with addiction and stuff. But let's keep it rolling uh, with the crowd questions for now. Who do we have up next? Anybody want to fire away? There's a lovely lady at the back there. Tell boy, work the room, work your magic. Hi, Jason. Hello. Hello. <laughs> uh, do you I... ever do you ever let the singer come in with five minutes to go before a Zoom call? <laughs> Extreme anxiety. How, how is that for their <laughs> mental health? Not good. No. <laughs> um, I'm sure you probably get asked this a lot, but um, McFly's Radioactive album was a very big part of my early journey as a guitarist, and I would love to know what song from that album did you enjoy the most working on and why? Oh, that's a good question. Um, I don't know. Uh, the song called Lies was on that album, wasn't it? Yeah, that song, Lies, because we had... That's the first time I've ever used two different drum kits on the same song. So a big rock kit set up, and then in the verses, we had a, a vintage Gretsch set up in an, like a, a dead room, trying to get like a disco sound. And Harry didn't literally run from that kit. <laughs> we used computer magic to stop it. Um, but that was good. And we went to Abbey Road and did big orchestra and stuff, and... That's another weird thing. You go to record orchestras and stuff at Abbey Road and you think, yeah, it's a good day. It cost about 40 grand today. <laughs> then my job is to come home and get rid of literally 80% of it over the next two weeks and just bin it, bin it all off. Because the problem is, with, and Giles has found this, we've had this argument lots in A, when your job is doing the embellishment stuff of music, so like Giles is with samples and keyboards and stuff and strings and backing vocals, problem is with that is it always all sounds good so when you go record a bunch of strings and orchestras and stuff you sit in there abbey road in tears and it sounds amazing but then you put it on the record and it doesn't all work you can't just have a record full of things that sound all great at once for five minutes so then then you've got to go <laughs> well you can well you, well, you, you can't though can you you can't have a football team who's just scoring goals all the time. It's not going to happen. You're going to get caught on the counter-attack, Adam. You're being naive. <laughs> optimistic. He's being optimistic. You're being a, if you keep, you're going to, they're going to beat your press. So, um, so you've got to go back and get rid of a lot of those strings. You need light and shade. You need moments. Dynamics. Of, well, something go. Adam's forgotten about. <sighs> Showing off there. How how integral were you to bring in Busted and McFly together for the McBusted record tour, all of that? Not very integral, but I was there. Hey, it's the taking part that counts, right? Yeah, so we were in Manchester doing pre-production for an album and I'd, I decided I should go on tour with the band, but they didn't want me to go on tour with them because <laughs> I told too much. I said, I'll come and do pre-production with you, which is when you're rehearsing songs, I'll come and do it on tour. We can do it in soundcheck. So every day in soundcheck, the crew would soundcheck and then they'd give us an hour and I'd sit on stage with the boys and we'd work through the songs and record them. And I thought that was really cool. No one else did. And because um, it just got in the way. But um, James was in LA and he'd flown in and landed in Manchester for some reason and gone to see... The boys play that night at Manchester Academy and he had his acoustic guitar with him. And I think Fletch, who managed the band, said, oh, James, you should come on and open the show tonight. 
So James walked out with his acoustic and played three or four busted songs. Crowd went mental. It was amazing. And then um, we were sitting in catering after that, having dinner. And Fletch went, how amazing would it be if we could put Busted and McFly together? And um, somebody went, yeah, McBusted for a joke. And it was funny, blah, blah, blah. I had the show that night. Then the next morning in catering, first in for breakfast every day, sitting there having breakfast. And Fletch comes in and said, you know that idea I had last night? I've just been speaking to Paul Franklin and he reckons he can get offers for a tour on it. I'm going to do it. And it, so it just came from this silly conversation the night before, which James had, had instigated. And um, and then the next thing they tried was a, an alcohol show. And I think James and Matt turned up and played at that to see if it worked, and it did. And then, yeah, they went and made that. Well, I had I I think I got fired from that album in the middle of it. You think? Okay, I did. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well... <laughs> Yeah, yeah. I don't know why I got five from it. It was because it's me and Steve Robson. Well, Steve Robson was a producer, and then he got me in to help. But my way of producing and Steve's way of producing are completely different. So let's say I'd spend some time working with the band on their parts and stuff. And yeah, some people just like to look at their watch and go, <laughs> "Have we had a hit yet at five o'clock?" And right. So you're was, more organic. Yeah, I kind of want them to enjoy making their record and be proud of it. So, yeah. So Got there, fired. Steve. No, he's a great producer, though. <laughs> he's, that's why he's so successful. And For that to work, there had to have been no ego between those, was it six guys? Uh, Four and two? Yeah. No, they're all best mates. No ego. I mean, it's egos, but you need egos. But they've got a pretty good catalogue of songs to play. That tour was amazing. First tour was just mind-blowing. Yeah, really good. Really good. Next question. Anybody like to fire away? There we go. Go at the back. Hi, Jason. Um, hello, mate. Hello. I've come down from Manchester. Have you? Hey. Yeah, I have. So uh, it's been great. I really enjoyed listening to you. Has it uh, been great? Yeah, it has been great, yeah. <laughs> Worth the trip. Shall we all Definitely. chip in for some petrol money for the uh, way home? If you wouldn't mind, that'd be great. <laughs> Five for each. <laughs> Going to need a bit more than Let's that. Let's pass the hat round. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, my question is, if you were starting out as a producer today, how would you go about it? What would you do to get yourself noticed? Yeah, that's a good question. Because I don't think I'd be very good at, at it. Um, I, I like to talk like this, but I'm not very good at selling myself and a lot of producers today really good at that and they're always on Instagram and showing their gear in the studio and their techniques and what they do and stuff and I never I've never done that um so I think that's the kind of way to do it the trouble is everybody's doing that so how do you know I mean it's tricky I mean I would I just wouldn't know I mean how did you get started back when you did what was your initial steps? What, with the band or with, with With producing after A's done and you're figuring out what to do next. What um, are the initial steps you make? To well, I was crying for a while. I um, had no money. I had to sell everything I owned, even, including my signed Dennis Burkamp, Ian Wright football, that me and Adam won for being on Soccer AM three times in a row. That was my prized possession. I had to sell that on eBay for 30 quid. I was so skint. I had my second son. I couldn't even get a tenner out of the bank the day he was born. Couldn't even get a cup of coffee phone's not ringing anymore 
It was, yeah, pretty. And, and you laugh, but that's that's oh, like awful. As, as bleak as it gets, isn't it? Yeah, and yeah. anybody who's been in a band and then not been in a band will know. <laughs> you sold that thing. Don't put that on the podcast. Bands split for various reasons. We split because we literally were we were, we were screwed financially, and we didn't know how to sack the drummer. Yeah. Yeah. We, we didn't have the heart, so we blamed the the batman. <laughs> um, exactly. Jesus Jones evidently had no problem with that, and therefore so they found a work they found a workaround. <laughs> Definitely, we, keep that we've in. got a we've got more of a heart than Mike Edwards on the human level. <laughs> um, yeah, that was is a horrible time. So, and then I bought a few bits and bobs so I sold a lot of stuff bought a microphone and a computer and by the end of A I was producing all our B-sides and stuff and a few of the bands we had a studio and I produced an album by a band called 18 Wheeler from um, Glasgow who were amazing loved them and made a really bad job of it and someone came in and mixed it I tried to mix it and couldn't mix it and realised then that I didn't know what I was doing with mixing so someone else came in and mixed it but it was a good album and and then um a friend of ours julian um, emery who's a genius loveliest guy in the world amazing producer and guitarist he was writing a few songs with some various songwriters and he'd come from that kind of session guitar world and they all sounded good but they were a little bit boring and then through our, our friend dave um who knew Julian? I went to work with him for a few days on these songs to try and put some personality and life into them. And he played them to Paul Adam, who was at Island Records, who's an A and R man. He was on the first. Paul was on the first X Factor when it was called Pop Stars. He was on the judges panel for that. One of the loveliest people in music that I've ever met. Big Arsenal fan, amazing guy. And we played him those songs, and he went, "Oh, you got it right with Matt." from Busted, and I loved Busted at that point. I thought they were brilliant. And I was really starstruck, so I met Matt in the pub, got absolutely battered with him, so drunk I can't remember it. And, and then the next time I met him was the same, and the next time I met him was the same, and then and then, um, and then I was like, Matt, I'm not very good at drinking. <laughs> and um, <laughs> so we need to ease off on that. And then I brought him to our studio for a week, and me and Dan, Carter, as you know, you know, Dan, me and Dan and Julian wrote three songs with Matt and then we made the demos and the demo sounded so good. Not thanks to me, thanks to Julian, who I learned loads from that Paul said, you should produce the album. The demo sounds so good. Just put live drums on these and, it, and it's done. So we went and spent a year making that record with Matt and that was a dark time for Matt. So we thought we were making a busted record and busted split up on our watch well in the studio with him and he was told to come to a press conference so a car picked him up he went to a press conference was told his band was splitting up loads of press staring at him and then he disappeared for two weeks and came back and like, I guess we're making a solo album now and he didn't even have a record deal or anything and, like this is a kid who'd been in a band since he left school never knew anything so we again became like his family and then he got in a lot of trouble with no drinking and stuff and and I always loved sober Matt more than drunk Matt. I thought he was a, one of the best people I've ever met, still do. So um that documentary that's coming out is interesting. 
is one of the loveliest people in the whole world. He's a mate, very intelligent, smart guy, and we made a great record with him. And then, um, so you kind of learn everything. Bombed. <laughs> you kind of learn everything that you need to know about producing in that first project. Then, in terms of just you're learning the the sonic side of things on the job, yeah. but then also you're watching this guy's whole life fall apart and having to figure out how to get the best out of him as a performer and 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 be a friend and and all of that as yeah. you say counselor stuff that comes with the territory as well yeah yeah and we made it i think that album's brilliant i love it i'm really proud of that album matt's album but he didn't do what commercially didn't do very well the direction creatively with a band and everything wasn't wasn't great but it's a weird time for music again and a weird time for for matt so um but he's gone on to do great things he's a lovely lovely human being incredible so yeah that was really good but it took a lot I mean, that was another thing. It took a year and a half to make that album and commercially wasn't very successful. So I was like, okay, hmm, this is, you know, you kind of think, you know, what have you earned on a day rate? <laughs> He's put everything into this and it hasn't gone. You know, I thought it could sell a million records and it, and it didn't, which is, you know, a bummer for everybody. But I learned so much from doing that. So that was my way in to doing that. Doesn't Not a very good answer to the question, but... I think I think the answer to the question would be find some bands and and, and work with them and help them and um, local bands because if they're good enough and you help them get better. A, a good example is these guys from um, New Zealand that we met years ago called Bird and Bush, and they helped a band called Stereophonics do some demos. So Stereophonics were doing these demos, and Bird and Bush, Steve Bird, came in and helped record their demos, and the demos are great and got them a record deal. Then it came to making the album. They're like, who's going to produce the album? And the boys, Kelly said, well, let's let Bird and Bush do it. Because they've done the demo. So I think getting in with bands that you love and that you like for the right reasons, if they're good enough, they'll, they'll keep you on that journey if you've got a good connection. And that's the way a lot of producers get in. You, you know. It's all about relationships, isn't it? And getting in, at, getting in early, yeah. you know. Well, you know, you're paying your dues. You're not getting paid any money for it. So, do you think going out on the road with bands and doing live sound is a good way into studio engineering and producing? And yeah. in terms of getting to know the technical side and also forging the relationships, maybe going out and just being like a front of house sound guy on tour with an upcoming band with that, perhaps? Do you think? Yeah, be possibly. A... Yeah, yeah. I mean, most bands can make good sounding records now. Every band I meet now, their demos sound amazing. I might sit there and listen to them and think, shit. What am I going to do? What am I going <laughs> to do? Yeah, and then, and then I know because within about a minute I'm bored. That 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 good sound doesn't last very long. It really doesn't. I'd rather put a Johnny Cash record on with two microphones, and so that's yeah, good sound. So what? You need way more than that. How did you fall in with the Blackout Guys and Kids in Glass Houses? And because again, they were two bands that were just coming to an end as Kerrang was as well it seems like a lot of these bands that you know have similar trajectories to me and you know now they're obviously this year alright mate <laughs> <laughs> no it's good because we're, we're here yeah. not you no. <laughs> yeah. 
I just mean in terms of the time frame. Oh. 2013. The death of music, thanks to Jason was, Yeah. Yeah. You killed all UK rock. The year Jason killed Robbins. And then you saved it and re, you know gave new life to the whole scene. And obviously the Kids in Glass Houses and the Blackout have got big shows and they're playing again this summer. And that's really exciting. How do you get introduced to both of those two bands and start working with them? Because you were their guy. I don't know. Um, the record company re- um, reached, reached out, I guess. Up talking. Um, yeah, record, yeah, two up talks there. Um, I've done four up talks. Really? What words? Emma, four up talks. And none of them are relating to the size of the crowd either. That's underselling, if anything. Adam reckons that I up, up talk. We think now, on average, it's going to be seven tonight. It's about the law of averages. I don't think I. So. I don't think I. What are you doing? Do I talk? You're on four. I mean, it's, it's, it's well, those last two were a joke, though. When I went to the record company, reached out, they were jokes. So they did. Talk, down talking there. Um, and then and then Kissing Glass Houses was because they wanted me to go help write with them for a day. So I just went down to write with them for a day, and there's a song called... Um, uh, uh, I don't know. He's really good though, and he needed. <laughs> <laughs> I forgot the name of it, but he's really good. He's like a mid. Uh, anyway, he's great, and and, and but the, he needed some help with the verse, so I helped them rewrite the verse, and then then they asked me to produce the album. So we did that. We went to Texas and did that, um, and that had loads of success. And then the Blackout album was the same. I, I took them to the same studio in Texas, and. All the songs from that album were A-listed at Radio 1. It's nuts to think now. Was it Hope, that one? Or the one no, before? No, the album before, yeah. And Hope did well as well. Yeah. We did Hope. Um, Hope was a funny story because the drummer, Snarls, who's one of the world's nicest guys, broke his collarbone two days before we went into the studio. And we booked Air Studios, which is expensive. Um, and Air is like where Coldplay and Oasis record and stuff. And... Um, it's got the world's best mixing desk in it. There's only two in the world. Um, the Air Montserrat Neve desk, it's amazing. So we were doing drums in there, which, and it's expensive so to go in there for a, doing drums for a week. And then Snoz had broken his collarbone. So I got my mate in, um, and um, he played uh, drums, learnt the songs in two, Tom Winch, learnt the songs in two days and then recorded them in the first four days and Snow's just sat in front of him and can air drummed um, finding out a lot about drumming on records tonight aren't we yeah yeah I mean rock music drumming's very important any but... stories about Adam you can tell us <laughs> yeah there we oh, go oh yeah I could have called any drummer in the world it's like if only I know someone <laughs> I was free I was just sat around you know doing nothing First album we ever did with a real producer with, with this guy called Tom Wilson in, in L.A. He'd done The Offspring. And Adam's laying down. We were in L.A. First time. We'd never been there before. And Snoop Dogg's in the studio with us. and um, Not with us, but in the next door. And um, we used to see them quite a lot. And it was quite intimidating. And I don't, I'm just saying that to sound cool. <laughs> it's got nothing to do with the story. Um, and um, I remember Adam drumming the first day. And we were recording live to tape, no Pro Tools. 
And Tom Wilson turned around to me and went, holy shit, is he going to hit one kick drum at the same same velocity? <laughs> no. <Nope. laughs> I remember going, I remember going, I don't think he is, mate. Well, listen, mate. Yeah. I mean, you. Well, so you talk about dynamics in recording and, and kicks. Like you want you, in rock music, you want it, you know, your downbeat is normally your big kick. You know what's weird though? Um, again, Steve, his downbeat is on this. But, um, <laughs> but, but I, I knew that conversation had happened, and we just got a record deal, and we're in Los Angeles. And I was... think, do you want you to compare and no. talk? Yeah, come on up, mate. Come no, on no, up. No, no, no. Come, come on, on up. Come Drummers. on up. Come on, come on up. Come on. Don't be shy. Take it up here. Come on. You can have my seat. Oh, thanks, Matt. You're not farting on it, have you? No, no. Come and have a Can seat. Can I buy a baguette off you? <laughs> and uh, and a map of um. <laughs> A map of Paris. Adam Perry, ladies and gentlemen, give him a round of applause. Oh, it's a French thing. The French thing, yeah. Twins together again. I've been slightly racist. Yeah, what was weird about that was, um, thanks for inviting me up, by the way. You're very welcome. It's good um, to see you. First, first Do you want to tell everybody about your illnesses that you've had? We'll come on to it. Okay. <laughs> um, yeah, the fir- first record, just gone, gone to LA for the first time. And uh, and I knew that conversation with Tom had happened. I heard it. And that was me fucked. And that is the job of a great producer, is to make sure that what happens in that room stays in that room. Because yeah. once a band member knows that, other people are talking about them through the glass. You're screwed. Yeah. Absolutely screwed. And my recollection making that record now is sunny, and it was great, and it's a right laugh. And it was our ambition come true and all that stuff. But I still to this day think... I don't deserve to be there playing drums this record because the guy we're paying to say to, to do this is slagging me off, and it's we've only been here four hours. And what's what's horrible is it's that's true. Oh yeah, it's true. <laughs> and he, he had a good point. I am shit, and um, yeah, he had a good point. You know, no kick drums are going to make the head at the same t- um, velocity. That's that's yeah. what you get with me. But the twin gimmick keeps me in the band. Could could you ever be in a band without your twin brother though? No, or Giles. This goes to both of you. My main memory of making the album with Giles is Giles. Some of his wallet. Giles had this massive wallet. Yeah. In, Back the, in the days of cash. In the days when he had to keep receipts of everything. And we were in LA, so we just went out and bought every snowboard we could because he just got a record company advance. And we didn't have any children at that point. Five, Emma. That was five up talks. I oh, told you we'd get to seven. Shit. Uh, didn't have any children. That was five. <laughs> We'll get to seven. Yeah. <laughs> I thought when you said up talk, it's when you oversell a number. But no, you're, no, it's t- when you go you're up talking about inflection. Like, like a question, like that. Uh-huh. I don't mean to do it, but I just did. Anyway, Giles, had this, conscious, Giles was doing some funny tap dancing, and then he fell over on his wallet. He fell out, he tripped himself up, and he fell, and the wallet was there on the top of his thigh. And you know things like, that's funny, he'll get up in a minute. And he didn't get up. Paralyzed. <laughs> And when we managed to pull him up, he had a bruise. He must have gone from his knee. Like, like, it looked like he'd been in a motorbike crash. It was so bad. Do you remember, Farmer? Oh, sorry. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That was my main memory of doing that album. To impress Snoop. Yeah. Didn't he I need... But we hit Snoop's Hummer with a, me and Mark playing basketball and the alarm went off and all his mates came rushing out. So like, don't shoot, we're English. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Gets you out of everything, that. <laughs> so, did you, you guys toured after A um, for a significant amount of time with the Bloodhound Gang, right? You were doing sound. Were you not doing sound, sound with them for yeah. a bit? 
I've got a funny story about doing sound. I built this monitor. So Jim from the Bloodhound Gang phoned me up and said, we're about to go out and do all these festivals and we want to build in-ear monitors for the band. This is before everybody had in-ear monitors. Can you come out and build it for us? And I was like, yeah, I'll, I'll come to Philadelphia for two weeks and get paid for um, building this stuff. So I built these in-ear monitor racks for them. I don't know how. Didn't know anything about it. And then I said, I'll come out and do on-stage sound for your mon monitors for them. And um, everyone's like, cool, that will be fun. And the first gig we're in, um, well, a couple of things happened. The first gig we were in Helsinki or somewhere. Helsinki. Helsinki. And Bam, Bam from Viva La Bam had come out on the whole tour. And he was good mates with Ville from, um, what they call him. So it's quite a big deal being in Helsinki with Ville and Bam. And it's all kicking off and it's all crazy and stuff. And I'm, having, and I'm like trying to concentrate on my job and do the best job I can. So we're doing this show and I'm doing Jared, the bass player's monitor mix. And he's walking around the stage and as he's walking towards that side of the stage, stage right, I guess, I'm turning his monitors up so he can hear himself. Anyway, next day I get called into the production office and there's a meeting about the monitors the day before. I'm like, oh, I'm in trouble. <laughs> and Jared's in there. I was like, how was the show last night? Jared's like, yeah, um, little problem. I was like, okay, what's the problem? He's like, when I walk away from my bass amp, I don't want to hear the bass. <laughs> He's like, there's a reason I walk away from the amp. And I got, I got fired from it, for making it sound too good. <laughs> Turns out the Bloodhound Gang don't want to hear themselves when in I, their when I, when, I, um, when I first joined the band, we were doing a signing session at Virgin Megastore in Berlin or somewhere. And we sat there signing for about four hours. And I was sat next to Jared. And all these sounds of kids are coming past. And I'm dying for a piss. And um, and they're playing our album through the PA in the record store. And Jared turns and goes, hey, Ian, what's this shit? It's our record. Really? Never heard this shit before. <laughs> <laughs> what the hell is this crap? <laughs> what the hell is this crap? <laughs> Whilst so, so we did a thing on this tour. Jared used to have this piece of shtick called Dick Cheney. Where he'd tie... So, so Bloodhound Gang makes shtick up by writing it on a shtick list. We have a shticktator who joins, joins the... Uh... What a man, look oh, at this. Thank you, man. Do you want a beer, Adam? Yeah, thank you, man. There you go, cheers. Yeah, so we have a shticktator who, who joins your shtick meeting at three o'clock and we write the, the shtick for the day. Just to just interrupt. So this is a serious, big arena band. Well, they're, at this point, they're Stadiums. like as big as it gets, yeah. aren't they? Every day at three o'clock, they have a shtick meeting. And the only rule of the shtick meeting is you can't bring shtick to a shtick meeting. So you can't walk in with shtick. You, you have to make up shtick. You've got to be shtick. serious about it. got to be serious about your shtick. And Jared, Jared will have been on a computer all morning, let's say they're in Amsterdam, looking for things about Amsterdam to write shtick about. And then he'll write them down on a shtick list. And one, one day we are in Amsterdam, and my job was to put out the set list and Jared's shtick list which is basically prompts for funny things for him to say. So I write, I'm gaffering the sat list down, and people are throwing beer and stuff. Then I'm gaffering some sticklers down. <laughs> and one of them says, one of them says clogs, and the other one says wimbles. No, wooden shoes. Wooden shoes wooden and wimbles. And that's then I just go out to Jared. I'm like, Jared, let's put your He's like, that's all I got. <laughs> Literally, that's all he can think of. Hey, Amsterdam, you got some cra <laughs> crazy feet. Footwear going on. 
Um, so that's the shtick list. It's really important for them over yeah, time. Then you have a, a shtickator who's head of the shtick meeting, and then you have a local shtick stick guy. So somebody works in the mayor's office, for example, the promoter will go out and get him, bring him in, he'll feed in the local shtick about did the mayor get found in an uncompromising position 10 years ago with some beers or newspaper cutting we can put on the video screen or and then then Jared will go around and piss in a local fountain and is that when you did yeah, the Alapalooza tour and your your backdrop was yeah. Osama Bin Laden well, it was it was a yeah it was a yeah yeah really sorry. <laughs> it's a cartoon that got banned whilst I know it's a long story and I don't want to demean the story but whilst we have you up here and we're talking about the Bloodhound Gang and Shtick could you share a brief overview, if such a thing exists? It doesn't exist. Of, of <laughs> Dan, Dan might give you a brief one. Of the when you're in, story. you're in Russia and uh, oh my god, the shtick goes one step too far. One step beyond. It, very much so. What, ha- what at least what happens on stage? We don't need to get into the full Started repercussions. World but... War Three. They did start World War Three. Well, actually, the fun... you you weren't out there for this. No, I wasn't. But the headline in the paper said, "If World War Three breaks out, blame the Bloodhound Gang," and that's what happened. No, it said, "If Russia invades crime, if Russia invades Crimea, blame the Bloodhound Gang." Was a Rolling Stone headline, and they did. <laughs> and now the Bloodhound Gang can never tour again because yeah, well, literally Jim's got um, yeah. hitmen after him. And so, I don't. I feel like I'm stealing Jason's Shtick. your night. It's now a family affair. Oh, it's family affair. The farmer can come. He doesn't. Him. He doesn't mind sharing the limelight, do you? Yeah. No, no, this is good. So yes, yeah, so I joined the band, and and Dan Carter and Dan Carter. Well. So me and Dan were out, and we had the best. We've had some mad tours, scary, scary stuff. Like you can't make up stuff you see, and it looks like the Monty Crew book come to life. Mic technique, Adam. Even though you look at him, move the mic. Oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Producing that that's drummer shtick. Yeah, look at that. And um, and um, and then the last tour we did was amazing, and everyone got on. We had really amazing gigs, arenas, um, headlining arenas, headlining festivals, and then the last day of the tour was in um, somewhere a down dance. near Sochi. It a dance, wasn't it? No, it's down near Sochi, like in the south of Russia, on the Black Sea. The day before, we were in Odessa, which Odessa, Odessa, sorry, yeah. pounding the shit out of with cruise missiles. And um, and we played in this Black Sea resort called Ibiza Beach Club, and it was amazing. And they were just giving us lobster and champagne all day. I was swimming in the Black Sea. Oh, this is great. And then and it was a, it's one of those turn-the-wheel gigs. So in between arenas, we do these to keep everyone occupied. We play smaller gigs. And it, it was weird. It was like a, a beach club, and there's about... A thousand people there, not a lot of people. Clock's ticking. Yeah. And um, <laughs> it's a weird gig anyway. It didn't feel quite right. Anyway, four songs in, my snare goes through, which it, it sometimes does. So I'm helping my drum tech get my old snare out and put the new one in. And our monitor guy, because it's a really small gig, sat where you're sat and sit, comes out, tries to help us. And while all this is happening, Jared says to the crowd, throw stuff at me, which is what Bloodhound can do. Someone throws a Russian flag on stage. Jared puts his down his pants, does that with it throws it into the crowd and says, don't tell Putin. And that was that. I didn't see it happen. Anyway, the gig got a little bit dicey and we were told that we need to leave. So we got in our cars, we went back to the hotel and it's like, it's a bit weird, a bit of a weird scene. It was good, we getting really well today. Got a tan and, and um, <laughs> nice day. And then flew to, flew to Russia the next day and, um, and then as he landed, there's like film crews all over the airport. Tarmac, like the Beatles had landed. But not in a good way. Like, you keep look, why are you looking at him? The, I don't know he's how to looking do this. for reassurance. Yeah, yeah. Address the crowd. All right, yeah. Address the crowd. I'm not very good at this. And um, 
Yeah, so it's a bit weird. Anyway, we went back to the hotel, playing beach volleyball in the hotel with these Russian dudes we met. Quite a tiring sport. I'm sure how people do that for a living. Um, and um, and and um, <laughs> and um, we get to the gig. Quite a tiring sport. Yeah, it gets, uh, we get, we like any other sport. <laughs> All sports well, are snooker. Oh yeah, it's not tiring. Yeah. Darts. Darts. To name but a few. Yeah, good point. I've learned something. Yeah. Um, esports. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. For example, S3. Yeah, three. <laughs> and moving on. Um, get to the gig, and, uh, and, this, and this guy goes, right, we need to go into this press conference that we've hastily arranged for you. So he walks into this massive marquee, hundreds of people from the press there. Jared thinks you shtick. He's pulling more Jägermeister shots and thinking everyone's laughing. And I, I, I know something's going on. So I'm kind of at the edge of the table trying to not be familiar with the rest of the band. And, like, you know, I'm just the English guy at the end. And... Um, and all these questions start coming up. Why are you, why are you um, insulting Russia? Why are you insulting the Russian people? And, and Charles like, we're not. We, we're not. We're just a joke. It's just a shtick. It's just a joke. <laughs> and, and some people are laughing and some people are taking it really seriously. And then we go back to our portal cabin. The lights go off, which is weird, like a power cut. And then when we come on, there's like loads of commandos. Like loads of them circling our thing. And... um. And then the next thing I can remember is I'm in catering. Our tour manager comes in and goes, you didn't get in the minibus. We're leaving right now. I was like, what? Why? He goes, just get in the minibus. And I was like, what about all the crew and all our gear? We're headlining this massive festival. Jimmy Eat World were on. And I'd just been at the side of the stage eating my salmon, looking at Jimmy Eat World. And this is going well. What a great gig this is going to be. Turn the tour. Sun's setting on the beach. It's like, and um, now I'm in this minibus and we're, we're, we're flying out of there and Jared's not with us. Anyway, the next, so me and Dan think something's up. I call Richard Trigg that does all our social media and said, Rich, get everything down about me. Get everything off my Instagram, Facebook. Just pull it all. Um, went to bed, woke up in the morning, saw Jared. He got arrested, driven into the woods, questioned, and they didn't have an interpreter. So he said, right, uh, um, I need an interpreter. So I said, we'll rearrest you in Moscow. So he went to the airport. And as we pulled into the airport, we got attacked by people throwing rocks, and, I mean, whatever they could find. I was absolutely shitting myself. And we got in we got into the airport, which is um like you know like the back of a news agent's when you've got a paper round. That's yeah, that's yeah. what it looked like. <laughs> and um and um and and um <laughs> and we all checked in for flight and we're in this little room like this and um suddenly little, this 15 is a... like Cossacks burst in this is airside, we'd all checked in, burst into room with bull whips and like sticks and stuff, dressing military gear. And just beat the living shit out of everyone. And I got through the side door and hid in a cupboard for four hours. <laughs> <laughs> little caveat, little, little... Ask Dan Carr about uh, that. If you ask uh, Dan Carr about it, that side door was the only means of escape. Yeah. And he locked it behind him. He locked, he locked it, it behind him, yeah. And holding the handle. <laughs> and holding the handle so they couldn't escape. In moments of crisis, we reveal our true selves. We really do. And then we were stuck in that airport for nine hours. They closed the airport, closed it to Didn't all the embassy air. call you and tell you to stop making... Yeah, so at that point, we decided to call the British Embassy. So me and Dan called the British Embassy. It was closed because it was a Sunday. And it said, if your life's in danger, hit whatever. So we hit this number and you get through to GCXQ. And we talked to this girl called Barbara. She knew all about our story. She knew what was going on. She was dealing with Sam from the US Embassy. They were dealing with the Germans. The Americans had put all their phones on the table and denied their rights to the Fifth Amendment or whatever it was. And they were talking to Sam. And it was like, oh, if your life's in danger, shit, there's people that can help. It's quite good, this. And um, 
And then Jared, thinking it's all shticks, like, okay, Ian, where the Reds come in, I want you, you know, like 18, where they start planning, like they're going to throw flour over people. I was like, when, when, uh, when the comics come in that door, Ian, you're going to swing at the first guy. Uh, Paul, you're going to take the Red out that way. I was like, what? I'm not taking any Reds. How are you talking about? This is unbelievable. And he's like, planning how we're going to foil this attack. And then the next thing was, Barbie says, we're going to send a SWAT team to help you. And he looked out the window, and there's all these guys with like AK-47s or whatever they are in like, you know, SWAT gear. And then we have this security guard who had his pistol out We're at the window doing this with his gun out. I'd never seen a gun before. And um, that was really weird. And um, anyway, the next thing was we tried to get a Learjet to pick Is up. Is that when I called you? Because Tara, Dan's wife, had called me and said, do you know what's going Something's on? Something's going on I, here. I heard from Dan. And then my mum called me. And then Helen and Adam's wife called me. So I called Adam. And this is literally what he said. Chase, have you seen that movie Argo? I said, yeah. He goes, it's like that, but worse. Bye. Oh, shit, it was off. I was. That's literally what he said. It was. To be fair, I fell to sleep in Argo, so I don't know how it ended. But I'm sure, I'm sure it was a, I'm sure it was a There was no ending. sequel, put it that way. Yeah, there was no sequel, exactly. There you go. Um, but yeah, so the, the, um, they sent a... Sent a uh, we phoned up Monty Lippman, who runs Republic Records in, in New York, got him out of bed and said, we need a jet, got to get out of here. And uh, I'm not sure what happened to that, but nothing happened. And, th- and then it said it, we got to, we got to White House. It wasn't a Malaysian Airlines jet, was Oh, sorry. It got to White House level, well. It got to White House level, apparently, whatever that means, they're going to send a shin up to get us. Because we, we really were in danger at this point. And we were, there's American citizens and British citizens in Russia before all this stuff had happened. And we were really in, in tremendous danger. We were, sh- we were shitting ourselves. Pussy riot times as well. Yeah. I mean, I had no idea how we were going to get out of this. Anyway, plane landed. They got people off. They got us on it. We had to pay loads of bribes to get us onto the plane. And when we got on there, everyone knew who it works. It'd been all over Russia today, which is now banned in this country, but it was a big TV station. And, um, and on, yeah, on the TV, in this room we were captive in for 10 hours, was just a big plasma screen back in the day showing the technology before LED. And um, <laughs> and, um and, and it was Russia Today and just dudes talking about Blood and Gang walking around with clipboards and headset mics and talking about me and my face is coming up. I was like, what the f- what's going on? I'm just here to play some gigs. And um and we're on Russia Today or being broadcast all over the country. So when we got on this plane, everyone knew we were, where we were and who we were. And then the idea was we were flying from Sochi to Moscow. So we got out of there and it was a really, really difficult time. We got on the plane and as we were flying into Moscow, I was sat with Jared and Jason said, it's all about a shtick to him. And I was like, mate, are you worried about this? Are you all right? He's like, yeah, a little bit from column A, a little bit from column B. <laughs> that was his answer. I was like, oh, Just still unfazed even yeah. at that point, which goes to show he's so committed to the so bit. So committed. And then we got... Yeah, we pulled and you into, think they'll never tour again because of that? Yeah. You think? It's well, Jared's just... been to Ukraine, hasn't he? Yeah, we pulled into Terminal... And we turned up, we got in this lift, went upstairs, we were behind bars in Moscow jail. And then the next cell was Edward Snowden, who'd been flown in from Hong Kong, and he was trying to be extradited. Sam was trying to extradite him to the US to face charges of treason. The Russians were trying to give him the freedom of the city. And uh, so we were, in, we were in, not involved in that, but that was happening literally next door. And then eventually they said to us, okay, we're going to free you. It's the Americans we want. And they pulled the Americans out to one side, it gives our passports back, and then they became our friends. Then it's like, right, we're getting you out of here. What flight do you want to get on? And we're like, anywhere in the EU, anywhere this. <laughs> yeah. And um, so uh, we and Dan and the three Germans, we flew to Prague, and they got us on a plane. And then I called Jason, and went, we're getting deported. And they deport you and read your 
read you this deposition thing until you're deported and banned for five years. And then that's it. And then, yeah, landed in Prague and me and Dan shared a room rather than be by ourselves and barricade ourselves in. We're still shitting ourselves. Then we got to London the next day. I got death threats on Twitter from Russians. Got off Twitter and that was uh, the last time we ever toured. But the tour before that, that is, a, is a small, quite short. A year, a year before, pop punk could be so precarious. Though. Yeah. Let's have a round of applause for that story. I think. <laughs> and at this moment, I'd like to introduce our next special guest, Vladimir Putin. He's here tonight. Here he comes on the front line. Matt, just to, just to throw some context on how the Blood and Gang never cancel a show because it's obviously they need the money. I'm in Australia making that McFly album, and and. Blood Ant Gang were touring in Australia and he gets ill. <laughs> of course he does. Because um, yeah, we were up for four days. So Adam's four got days. ill in Australia and he ends up in a hospital in King's Cross in the emergency ward in, in, in Sydney. And I get a call from the Blood Ant Gang tour manager saying, Adam's really ill. Um, suspected meningitis. Suspected meningitis. What should we do about it? And they're about to give him a lumbar punch. And I was like, okay, we better call Helen and his wife. So I go to the hospital to visit him, say to the boys, to McFly, sorry guys, I've got to go to the hospital. Adam's in the hospital. They think it's hilarious because they know that he's always in the hospital. So I go down to the hospital in Sydney. So just check me to say that the Jubilee line is still running. Go to see Adam. Okay. He's not very well at all. He can barely speak. Anyway, the next day they've got a gig. Um, what's the club called in Sydney? The Metro. The Metro. Blood and Gang have got a gig. And I'm like, surely they're going to cancel that. The drummer's in hospital. They're about to send him home, give him a lumber punch and stuff. And I've been with him. He's not very well. I go back to the studio. I get a call from Adam. He's like, you won't believe this. I'm doing the gig. I goes, where are you now? He goes, they've, they've come in and they've, they've basically discharged me from hospital, put me in ambulance, and they're driving me to the gig. Can full, of, full of nurses and doctors we put on the guest list. Throwing me to the gig with a, with a saline pack in. So I, did, I, I yeah. had to go to the gig to look after him, bring all the McFly boys down to think it's hilarious. Less and Jake and Blood and Gang play. I played for and then 40 minutes set. The dude from Less and Jake put an ice pack on my neck and pulled my inner ears out. <laughs> I've lost a click. Like, I, I'm already feeling like I'm about to die and now I've got no click. Then they like, put him, <laughs> looking at someone nodding their head to keep in time. Then they put him back in an ambulance and he goes back to the hospital. Back into hospital bed. <laughs> <laughs> that was the most rock and roll thing I've ever done. Rock and roll, yeah. Pretty yeah. cool. Well, congratulations for still being alive despite your tenure in the Bloodhound Gang. Yeah, I mean, yeah. <laughs> uh, do we have any more questions from the room? If we do... We've only had one. Let's... Um, I'm going to leave now, eh? Adam. <laughs> Adam Perry, ladies and gents. We should get Giles up for a question now. Yeah, we'll get Giles up in a couple more. Giles then, can do magic. We'll seamlessly well. segue into the music. So has anybody else... Ian Rendell has a question. Just down here, third row in, far right. That's not very nice. Yeah, right. <laughs> and I know he put his hand up in a weird way, but highly in. <laughs> it's that kind of that kind of underground club in in um in the Kilburn. It's all, it's all about brotherly love, oh. ultimately, right? Isn't it? So, right, say uh, A are in tour in Canada, and they're in Toronto. They've got a day off. They're in a bar. Right, you're in the bar. In Hypothetically walks. speaking. Yeah, obviously. In walks Geddy and Alex. Good up. They spot From Jake. Rush, for those who <laughs> might, might have yeah, not yeah. detected the... What about Neil? Well, no, this is... This is, this is now. This is after Neil, unfortunately. They spot Jason. 
they go up to Jason and say, look, we're doing this session right now. Adam, will you want to join? You join. Adam's just gone to the bog, right? <laughs> so they say, Adam, to you, we've got five minutes. We're going to do a session. Can you join us? What do you do? Great question. That's that very good. So I'm, I'm pretending to be. So the... Adam is in the toilet. Yeah. He doesn't know this opportunity has presented itself. And, I'm, <laughs> and they think I'm. Adam Perry, the England's, legendary rock and roll England's drummer from England. Seventh, Premier drummer. Seventh yeah. best drummer, the words of. <laughs> fourth best drummer in Britain. <laughs> what do you do? I just. I'd, I'd faint. <laughs> I met Geddy Lee in an airport once and nearly fainted. My knees went and I fell over. Did you see the gig that uh, the South Park guys did to celebrate? I think it was 25 yeah. years and it was Primus and Ween and, and Rush at Red Rock. It was yeah, amazing. it was amazing, yeah. That's a good question, Ian. He'd faint. That's a good answer. Would Adam be able to Adam, play Adam, if you come back Rush? out of the toilet, Jason's fainted. You go, what's happened here? And they go, oh, we asked. And you go, no, I'm Adam. Are you in? I'd, I'd say, yeah, I'd take the gig and then two or three minutes in to try to play Tom Sawyer. <laughs> um, I don't know what happened, but I'd be out of my ear. Yeah. There we go. Is there anybody here that yeah, doesn't like Tom Sawyer by Rush? Everyone likes that song, don't they? Giles can play, yeah, he can. Giles can play anything. Giles is a clever Perry that can play things. Do we have uh, any more questions? I think we've got time for three more before we move into a little musical segue. Uh, down the front here. Sorry, got the old geezer working for his money here. Thank you, sir. Hi, Hello. thanks. Uh, getting back on production talk. I'm really curious. Um, Don't Let It Go to Waste is actually my favorite album of all time. Um, and I'm really curious how your style and your approach to producing has changed since that day to now. Oh, that's a good question. Really good question. Um... Take a moment, let this percolate. That's a really good question. Uh, I'm not sure that it has. Um. <laughs> Only if it's on mic. <laughs> I, I, um, I think you're, you're way more confident because you've got history now. Whereas that was, that was the first major record we did. You were out to prove yourself. So you're probably reacting in different ways to situations. Yeah. Because you're more confident in yourself. Yeah, I'm more confident now, which means more hands-off. So I was more hands-on then. So I had to try and do everything. I needed to engineer and touch every knob on the desk and choose every microphone and all that stuff. Um, and some of that's insecurity, trying to prove yourself. Um, and now I'm more hands-off, hopefully. But not too hands-off. Like I, I still get involved and... Still touch the occasional knob. Yeah, still touch yeah. knobs. Yeah. yeah. But I don't think that's as important as I used to think it was. In fact, I really don't think it's that important anymore. And that's the reason I got rid of my studio, because I love turning up to studios and then using whatever's there. So whatever the microphones they have, we'll use, and that will help inform the sound a little bit. Whereas on that album, we were at ICP, we made some A albums, and it's one of probably the best studio in Europe. So they've got every microphone. I mean, their mic cupboard's as big as this stage. And it's got every microphone ever made. 
So, and every foot pedal ever made, and every guitar amp ever made, and it's a bit like a kid in a candy store. So you can get really bogged down and all that kind of stuff. And we probably did a bit too much then. And now I would I wouldn't really be that fussed about. I just let people choose whatever they want, and we'll make it sound great. Um, in fact, we did some, um, yeah, stuff a couple of weeks ago. Mark from A had written some new songs, which hopefully become new A songs. And me and Mark did a demo um, just at his place with a few things, and we just used one mic, just one of these for everything. And I'm literally holding it like that. Well, that was definitely going to be a question I wanted there to ask Mark you before up. the night's there's up, is up. will there be finally, potentially, maybe some, yes. some new music from the rock band A? Yeah, they will. It's taken ages to get a sound, and I'm not saying we're there yet, but Mark's... It's all got to come from Mark, the guitarist. He just sends me stuff, and he sent me a lot of stuff over the years, which I haven't been able to sing over. So I've got a really limited voice, like limited vocabulary when it comes to um, like my job in the band like, my voice is that that's it there's not much you can do with that and it's not it's not great when when you're 53 to have a voice like that especially when you're telling your kids off and you're going if you do that one more time i'm going to take your phone off you and they're looking at you like this I'm bothered <laughs> um so that's what my voice is it's quite limiting and then to have things to sing about i've had a lot of things that have gone on in the last five years and finally have things to sing about um apart from everything's ace which is what you know was our vocabulary for a while so even buildings i hear buildings are ace yeah, yeah. they're still ace um so i think yeah we're gonna make some a music this year mark sent me loads of ideas and i want the demos to become records my favorite album of all time is check your head by the bc boys which is kind of a demo and Infofreako by Jesus Jones, which is which was kind of a demo. So I think having that confidence, just to be serious for a second, having that confidence to go back and and put out demos in this climate where everything is pristine and every drum sounds massive and every guitar sounds massive, to be the opposite of that in a kind of not a punk rock way, but a DIY way, that's what I think A should be. And um, and it's taken a while to get the confidence to be like that, which is what production is, is the confidence in your own, um, in your, um, it's hard to describe, the confidence in your, your own, own vision, perhaps. Yeah, you or your own be. instincts. Just to go, that's my instincts, and I think, I think they're valid, and that's it. Let's go for those, rather than what everything else sounds like. So that's what I think I should be. And that's what we lost. Our last album, I think, for me, we tried to make a big sounding rock album. And at the end of the day, who cares? Anyone, lots of big sounding rock bands that are way better than us, the Deftones, for instance, never felt good enough to be in the Deftones at rock music. So how dare I even try and be that? Not saying we were, but you kind of in a lane that is a wrong lane to be in. I think I've just had a genius idea. You can have this for free. Please call the new album Lo-Fi Serious. Ah, that's good, isn't it? Don't mind that. I don't mind that. That's really good, Matt. We were going to call it Sexy Music. We was going to call it Sexy Music, yeah. Yeah. Lo-Fi Serious is good, though. There you go. Um, what is the 
the mental health documentary that you're a part of um, that you can tell us about in terms of you well, know, yeah, the, me, me and Adam who's involved and, and the yeah. timeline of when it might be out and all of that? We're doing some work for the International Suicide Prevention Association, um, which we've always tried to help. They're an amazing team. So we're helping them at the moment. This um, Suicide Prevention Day is September. So we're trying to make mini films that we can show in arenas that bands can um, basically say to the crowd before they come on stage, do you really know what the person next to you is going through in their in their lives? And um, I've been really the master, like most men, of covering stuff up. And um, especially when in a band, we're like these happy-go-lucky, everything's ace kind of band. And then real life hits you between, you know, the eyes and turns out it's not so easy after all. And um, and everybody in this room has probably been through ups and downs. The downs can be pretty down. And especially in music where, well, you see that in football a lot where I, I listen to talk sport a lot and there's a lot of um, attention about footballers and how short their career is and now there's no one to help them after, you know, they retire or there's no one to help them if they don't get picked when they're 15 or whatever, there's, you, you see a lot of that. You don't see it in music so much. There's no support there. When he suddenly dropped and, and the rugs pulled from under you and the phone stops ringing and all the friends that you thought were friends, and fortunately for us, they are. But for a lot of bands and people, the phone never rings again and you're unemployed and you're on a scrap heap and all you've known is touring in a band. And yeah, yeah, boohoo. It's, it's a great thing because it's all you've ever wanted. And some bands don't even get that far, you know. So so it's a tough life. And even if you make it mentally, it's not, you know, being in a studio 15 hours a day is not good for your mental health. It's not good for your family. You're not good for your wives, girlfriends, husbands, kids. It's just not a mentally healthy way. And I saw a thing recently, I forget what film it was or what actor it was, but they'd won an award for a film and, and the actor stood up and made a speech and he said, what I'm proud of about this film is the fact that everybody got to go home at seven o'clock at night and have dinner with their loved ones. And that kind of bro mentality of working all through the night and, you know, work hard, play hard, kind of this awful 80s kind of bro mentality had gone out the window. And I think you need a bit more of that in music. And I've known loads of people in music. And I think if you're creative as well, there's a reason you're, in a creative endeavor, you, you kind of opened up in in a way that it's all good. And then when the bad things come, they come pretty hard if you're a creative person and you're insecure like I am, which is why I like to talk a lot and show off because deep down I'm very insecure, like most people who are singers in a band and like validation and stuff. So you're kind of primed for bad mental health episodes. And it's taken me a while to kind of get used to that and come to terms with it. And um, so we're doing a little documentary about that right now. And there's other documentaries being made. Matt's got his thing and then a few friends of ours are making different things. And it just feels like there's a bit of a zeitgeist happening where people are talking about this stuff more and more in music. And I think it's a good thing. Yeah, um, it's amazing. And that band I mentioned earlier on, the Lottery Winners, their whole album is about, it's like a concept album about mental health, essentially. It's called Art uh, Anxiety Replacement Therapy. And, yeah, um, yeah it's... didn't they win an award, Adam? The Soko Award. They did. Yeah. 
and yeah. number one in the albums last yeah. week. Yeah, giving him Dickie some love. Yeah, it's um. Dickie came to that. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, that was a Dickie. <laughs> well, no, laughter's important too, you know, and it's important to um to to destigmatize. You need to still have fun, you know. You can't just go woe is me. Let's get serious for a second and not still, you know have fun as well yeah um i think you know and robbie williams is another person i think he's obviously someone that you're close to and as someone that has been through his share of stuff and oh yeah i think there's enough people um on every step of the fame ladder that can relate in some way to their own struggles and and journey through success and failure and you know a lot of it ultimately is external bullshit that you allow to internalize and in negative ways but i think ultimately self-care is where it starts isn't it is trying to live a healthy sane lifestyle yeah i mean most people don't go to work every day and have thousands of people calling them a wanker or saying the shit i mean most people don't do that and works hard enough but you get that in the band a lot you get that if you're a football player a lot but they make a lot more money than people in bands not that that helps but um you know, there's there's humans there, and and the, I think the the crew never get talked about. These are people who, you know, I've, I've got mates now who are in the fifties, like I am, who are still away from their families nine months of the year to make a living. And it's all they've ever known, and they're really good at it. You know, these are not old seventies roadies who, you know, are alcoholics and don't know anything else. These are professional, technical, incredible, you know team members road warriors aren't they yeah and um but mentally it's really draining and there's no support really for them you know tours over back home you deal with it and then yeah so you, you come home and you get thrown off this tour and all seems very glamorous but it's not when you're back home and then you're like a square peg in a round hole and you've got no money and you're waiting for the next tour so it's just a bit of a tricky a tricky business mental health wise Basically, it's a shit business, and you should only do it if you love it. It's a really right? good business, yeah, and there's some great people in it, but there's no, there isn't any HR department for the music business. That's all I'd say. So I'm not feeling sorry for the people in the music business. We chose to go into it, but in most jobs, there's an HR department, and there's someone to help you. And they might be terrible, but there isn't anything in music. You're literally on your own. Um, it seems like, as you say, the tide's turning, and we're helping each other more now, yeah, which, people, which is... Awesome. Especially and, um, men, you know, men are more getting more open about it. Which are you lovely. in a good place life life wise now? You feel like you're happy and grateful yeah. for where you're at and found a lovely girlfriend. And um my kids are happy and yeah, I'm happy and we're doing lots of business stuff with my brother and you know and my other brother Giles is there. The, the famous Giles is going to come and join us on stage any minute, I promise. I tell you, the best thing about being in a band and the best thing about this tonight is my with people here that I've been friends with forever and the friendships of our band there is nothing there's nothing like it it's like having 20 brothers or 30 brothers or whatever and um, you can all get in the room and just take the piss out of each other within a minute and it's incredible and it's I can tell what you know when footballers say their career's over and they miss the banter in the dressing room that's the most important thing that is the most important thing of being in a band, apart from the music and the, the art and everything. It's not about people cheering and throwing underwear on stage. That did happen once. 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 Yeah. Boxer shit, boxer shorts. <laughs> Still got your boxer shorts, man. Bloodstained. 
<laughs> blood, still got your bloodstained boxer shorts. <laughs> uh, no, he's mine. wearing them tonight. They're, they're Adam's. No, I think you touched on something there, which would be a really nice note to end on, which is that music, I think the sole reason I would like to go on a, a whim and, and suggest the sole reason everybody's here tonight is because of a deep connection to music uh, and the relationships that come from you that. You might be the, the memories, the moments. Um, that's what it's all about. Uh, and I think everybody who is in music in one way, shape or form, even as just a supporter and a fan, understands that. Because the weirdest people for me are people who don't love music. And they're just like, it's just this thing that is out there. I was chatting to someone recently about this. It's like, it's like saying you don't need air. You're like, well, what, yeah. what are you into then? <laughs> look, look, at like, look at Slam Dunk or Download or, or festivals or concerts when everyone comes together and there's suddenly, that's why I love festivals, and you're in this field with all these people who are literally like you, and you've probably come from a job where you're the like, outsider in that company and no one gets you and people take the piss out of your tattoos or whatever or the way you dress or and suddenly you end up in a field or a crowd with people who are you and you've got this connection and then a band come on stage and you, you're all singing along and it's because of their music and that's just, honestly, it can make me cry. It's the most amazing thing in the world. And you see that in football as well, like when you score, you know, your team scores a goal and, 60,000 people just become one for a few seconds. These little human moments are just incredible and they're getting more and more fleeting and more and more hard to find. But music still gives us that. And it's just unbelievable. It's absolutely the best thing in the world. It's amazing. So we're all lucky that we all like music, everybody in this room, because we're all here for that. So it is It's cool, isn't it? It's, it's ace. It is ace. You might yeah. say. Um, thank you so much to everybody for coming out tonight. It's been a really lovely night. I hope you've all enjoyed it as much as, as me and Jason up here. I'm going to exit the stage now. We're going to get the famous third, uh, Perry, on the stage. Charles, if you want to grab your guitar and, and come up and treat the, the lovely people Are you going to sing, London. Farmer? Giles, Giles, Giles. Yeah. Do we have a little mic stand for Giles, perhaps, so he can play and sing simultaneously? Um, uh, and like um, I said, if anybody wants to buy my book, I've got a few copies here and would love to shift them. And uh, yeah, please check out the podcast, Life in the Stocks. This conversation will be up in a couple of weeks as an episode. Um, before we get into music, please join me in thanking our wonderful guest and top gentleman, Mr. Jason you, Perry, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you. Cheers, Matt. Take no more